From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald faced truth. Like a lot of you, uh, I was watching Monday Night Football on Monday night, and I had my eight year old daughter sitting next to me. She likes football. She's, uh, she's my football buddy when a game comes on, and, and the six year old likes it as well. And, the older daughter likes football as well, and they understand it. But the 8-year-old, there's something about the game that makes sense to her. Four downs, 10 yards, that's a first down. A touchdown's worth six. The extra point is another point. She gets the strategy of the game, and often during the game, she'll go, hey, all they need is a touchdown, and then they could get a two-point conversion. And so she she tends to sit with me when I'm interested in a game, and I happen to be tuned in to the Buffalo Bills-Cincinnati Bengals Monday night game because it came kind of right off the heels of the Rose Bowl, Utah losing to Penn State. We'll get to all that. We'll get to the bowl games. We'll get to what it means. But we got to talk about the story that everybody's talking about and the story that really matters. And the, the story that matters is DeMar Hamlin and his collapse on Monday night football. Um, I thought it was both uh, the best part and the worst part of sports and humanity blended together. Uh, obviously, it was surreal to see a player involved in a play on the field suddenly collapse. Um, at first, I thought, oh, he has the wind knocked out of him. And I'll be honest, uh, like a lot of you, I didn't know who or what or much about DeMar Hamlin until he got injured last night in what was, um, I, I think, just a terrible moment for football and a scary moment and uh, I still remain hopeful that he will be okay that he will emerge from this uh, you know able to uh, able to uh, walk out of a hospital one day and but I tell you I found myself last night forehead to forehead with the eight-year-old and in in uh, after I realized with the ambulance on the field and really it was the it was the admission of Joe Buck and Troy Aikman on the broadcast that somebody was performing CPR on DeMar Hamlin that really knocked the knocked the uh, legs out from under me. Because at that moment, everything else that I was seeing on the screen made sense. The distraught Buffalo Bills players, tears running down some of the players' cheeks, others, uh, you know, standing over DeMar Hamlin as they were performing CPR, others yet walking away in disbelief and dropping to a knee or praying and Bengals and Bills players arm in arm last night in a moment that I thought was the best and the worst, as I said off the top of the show. The, uh, the best part of last night was the way that I thought that people pulled together and the way that, you know, especially social media, which can be a cesspool, and I wrote this this morning, like I really... You know, as I was watching the broadcast and listening to Troy Aikman and Joe Buck in a holding pattern, and that's where they were stuck. They were just stuck in a holding pattern. They didn't have a lot of information. I thought they fell short in a lot of ways because what I really would have wanted to hear from Troy Aikman in that moment was what it was like as a player to walk away from a game. As you remember, he had several severe concussions. He had a problem, you know, the dangers of the game. I wanted them just to be people in that moment, and I could tell 
they were both a little afraid to share information that would later prove to not be accurate, and they were probably getting a whole bunch of producers in their ears telling them what to think and what to say. And Joe Buck on four occasions announced that, uh, you know, they were both teams were given a five-minute warning after DeMar Hamlin was put in an ambulance and whisked to the University of Cincinnati Medical Center. Um, but uh, the NFL is denying that they said that. There's a whole... Uh, you know, you know, I guess controversy over what happened there. But I thought the best of last night, some of the best was happening on, you know, social media after the medical professionals for both teams rushed to DeMar Hamlin and somebody had the sense to perform CPR. Somebody had the sense to use an AED to help apparently get his heart uh, started again. And I thought a lot of medical, you know, the, the team's training and medical personnel who rushed out onto the field, you know, definitely in the win column on this one. But also on social media where it sometimes turns into and probably, you know, just give it some time. Maybe this won't be as pretty as I'm painting it to be. But I thought last night what I saw on Twitter in particular were people coming together, praying, um, empathizing. Uh, helping others understand who DeMar Hamlin is. Like, I didn't know before last night's broadcast and all of this happening that, you know, he was a four-star recruit who had turned down Ohio State and Penn State and some others uh, because he wanted to stay home and go to Pitt. Says a lot about him. Tells me something about him. I didn't know either that he was involved in a couple of charitable organizations that, have an eye towards kids and then found out, you know, he had a really kind of a rough upbringing. And it makes sense to me that he wants to help some kids that maybe uh, didn't have much at Christmas time. And it really speaks to to me and I think the rest of us to learn a little bit about DeMar Hamlin and humanize him. Um, you know, the Buffalo Bills released a statement saying that he suffered a cardiac arrest, that his heartbeat was restored on the field, that he is now sedated and in critical condition. Uh, medical experts uh, and doctor friends and nurses tell me that it was a good sign last night as the ambulance was leaving uh, the stadium there in Cincinnati that it stopped to pick up his mom because it suggested that they had him at least back, so to speak, and were pausing to let his mother get into the ambulance and ride to the hospital, to the medical center there, a trauma-level hospital, which just, you know, by the grace of God, happens to be near the stadium. So um, DeMar Hamlin got great care. So put that in the wind column. But I, I also want to give a nod to the people on social media last night who were empathizing and praying and all pretty much pointed in the right direction, at least what I saw. I mean, the vast majority of people were coming together and, uh, you know, talking responsibly amid a terrible, terrible event that happened on the field. And I can't remember a player in football in particular who had suffered an injury like that dropping on the field. Now, people have pointed out that Chuck Hughes, uh, formerly uh, of the Detroit Lions in 1971, had a similar incident on the field in which he collapsed with about a minute left in the Lions-Bears game. And Dick Butkus, uh, the linebacker for the Bears, was not far away from Hughes uh, was the closest person to Hughes, and Hughes had a, ha a heart attack on the field. And it turned out later that one of his arteries was 75% blocked. Uh, but the NFL at that time in 1971 waited 
allowed the medical professionals to uh, remove Hughes from the field. He died on the field. And then continued the last minute of the game. Now, last night, I thought all along, now, after we knew it was serious, which is essentially when you see the ambulance on the field, at that point, I thought this game is going to be postponed. And I remember looking at the clock and then subsequently being confused by Joe Buck saying that the NFL had informed uh, ESPN that there would be a five-minute wait. Uh, the NFL is denying that. Troy Vincent with the Players Association saying that didn't happen. But we all know the NFL's reputation. It was not difficult to believe last night that the NFL wanted the players to get back on the field and play the game. There was money to be made. This is a big game. The implications for the playoffs. And I can tell you in our living room, uh, the eight-year-old and I were sitting there, and I was saying they need to, they need to postpone this game. Like, they need to call this. Uh, this game isn't important. And I remember Troy Aikman at one point saying, that, you know, he, he said that, that the game was no longer about football and it was about people. And that kind of struck me as something that maybe we all need to step back and think about while we wait to see, uh, you know, the recovery of DeMar Hamlin and, and uh, what doctors are doing now in Cincinnati for him. But it struck me that all along the game should not have been about the game. Like, it should be always about the players and the people involved. It should be about the players on the field in uniform. It should be about the coaches and their families and the players' families and DeMar Hamlin's mother and, you know, the, his loved ones. It should always be about that first and foremost. And there shouldn't have been that question last night as the NFL was trying to figure out what to do in a relatively unprecedented situation I want to give them a wide berth on that. But it just struck me that a lot of fans and a lot of people on social media and the broadcasters and the, the people in my living room and probably your living room as well uh, weren't in the mood to see a football game after DeMar Hamlin went down on the field. I think everybody was in the mood to see uh, you know, more reports about what is going on with DeMar Hamlin, more athletes talking about what it is like to be on the field, I wanted some news and some information to a certain point, but I didn't want to see football. And, in fact, if the Bengals and the Bills had just taken a 5- or 15- or 30-minute time period and then warmed back up and got onto the field, I wasn't going to watch it. I was turned off to the point where I was like, the NFL is not really going to do this. But the NFL has done this to itself, has it not? League of Denial. It said that brain injuries weren't a thing. It denied that for years and years and years while players were getting sick and players were dying and players were unable in their post-football career to function. The NFL said, hey, this isn't a thing. And it ended up uh, turning out that, in fact, it was a thing, that CTE existed. And we also know that this is a league that is you know, built on billion-dollar enterprises and multi-million dollar players. And we know that, you know, the the game last night in Cincinnati was worth a lot of money, television money, uh, money at the stadium with tickets and concessions. There's a lot of gambling money placed on the game. And so I don't think it was a it was a huge leap for people who are watching the game to hear Joe Buck say, hey, both teams have been given five minutes. He said it four times. Both teams have been given five minutes to warm back up. We'll get this game going again. And it, it wasn't like we all went, no, that can't be true. What did we do? We all said, well, of course, 
It's the NFL. They want to they want to make more money. They're just going to get Demar Hamlin off the field. Now the NFL's backing down from that today and saying, "Hey, no, 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 that wasn't our position." But I think the NFL maybe should evaluate the idea that Joe Buck was saying that. He wasn't saying that in a vacuum. I'd be really curious to know where he got that information. He wasn't making that up. That didn't come out of the broadcast booth. That came from somewhere. And somebody talking to people in the NFL. Secondarily, the NFL needs to do some soul-searching on that front because nobody watching that broadcast or hearing about it afterwards went, oh, no, the NFL cares so much about players, that can't possibly be true. It was it was a, uh unthinkable um, suggestion that the players would be suiting back up and playing five minutes later. And anybody who saw Sean McDermott walk across the field and have a conversation with uh, the opposing head coach and you know the two coaches got together and it was evident you could tell the coaches were not down with playing a football game the players were not down either with finishing the football game and I left last night's broadcast thinking of course about DeMar Hamlin and praying for the kid and hoping that he comes through this but I also left thinking a lot about the NFL and I want to I want your take on what you thought about what were the wins and losses last night where was your mind if you were watching it or where were you when you heard it what was your reaction um, you know obviously some of the Buffalo Bills players stayed over and went to the hospital just to hang out and be supportive of their teammates so did some of the Bengals and I'm like I took that as like look in this in this world where we're all pitted, you know, by our by our rooting allegiances in the NFL, or by a league like the NFL, where frankly it is about producing or getting out of the way so someone else can take your job with non-guaranteed contracts, I was left thinking last night how nice it was to see players pull together, to see coaches pull together, um, and to see a lot of fans pull together and people openly on social media, praying, like literally typing out prayer. And, you know, I, I, I got to give Joe Buck and Troy Aikman a little bit of a pass. Like I was looking in that broadcast for Keith Jackson, Al Michaels, Bob Costas-like context, and it's a very difficult thing when you are broadcasting a sporting event and you have something unthinkable happen to pivot. It happens in breaking news all the time. Uh, High-profile TV anchors will tell you, like, you know, all of a sudden there's breaking news. They have no script. They have little information. They've got to pivot. It's a talent to do that. And I don't think Buck and Aikman, they sounded like they were a little bit in shock and a little bit unsure of themselves. But I thought the gold came later in the evening, even the studio show. When they tossed back to the studio show and Adam Schefter and Booger McFarland were talking, I felt like, um, you know, it was about, a minute of good content and then it was just a lot of repeating of the same sentiment and I felt like it was going in a circle. I thought the gold came later with Scott Van Pelt and Ryan Clark who had a real conversation and talked like real people about what was happening on the field. So I want to have that conversation with you now. You tell me, what was your reaction to what you saw? What did you think of it? 503-417-7575, you know, and and had the NFL taken the field, I wasn't going to watch it. 
should the NFL even be interested in playing this game, or does the NFL just kind of need to move along from it and leave it as it was? Because if the focus truly is DeMar Hamlin, I don't know how you go back and try to rectify playing this game or picking it up at five minutes of the first quarter and saying, okay, we're just going to start here. Um, I just think it's uh, it's a really bad position for the league to be in to even be compl- contemplating, uh, you know, picking this game up. I want your reaction to what you saw. You got the bald face truth. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald face truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. I want to know what your reaction was last night as you were watching Monday Night Football. I shared some of mine. My eight-year-old daughter came uh, downstairs late last night uh, after she had been uh, put to bed. And uh, she walked into the room, and I thought she was going to say, you know, hey, uh, you know, can I have my light on, or I'm hungry, or, um, you know, something. Like, it's, it's always something. If you have kids, you know that. But she came into the room, and she said, hey, is there any update on that player? It was keeping her up at night. I want to know about you, your reaction, your experience as you watched Monday Night Football. 503-417-7575 is a number. Let's go to the phone lines. Mark in Portland, let's punch him up. Mark, welcome. Hey, how you doing? Happy New Year. Happy New um, Year, Mark. Yeah, that. I mean, that was uh, you know a, a something we hadn't seen in an NFL game, but I, I you brought up the 70s, and I, I think uh, – the, the pressure that's put on the NFL is the only reason, in my opinion, that they stopped the game. Because I remember Daryl Stingley, uh, I think it was Jack Tatum, yep. uh, hit him. Back then, the, the hit was legal even, and he broke two of his vertebrae. He broke his neck, and everybody on the field knew what happened, and they went on with the game. So, I, I you know, uh, I think it's very fortunate that I don't think there's, next to a hospital, I don't think there's a better place than the than the NFL football game to to you know have your heart rehabilitated uh, if that happens in a situation somewhere else like on a golf course with your buddies you know you're uh, you're in trouble so we're you know it was just everybody coming together and praying but John I think the bigger picture is the, the NFL and and the, the greed and it's about the money and they really you could just feel that they they. We were all waiting for them to cancel the game, and it, it didn't happen for like an hour. It's like everybody knew what they should do, but they didn't really do it. And it sounds like the two coaches and the players on both teams had to, you know, kind of persuade them to that decision. But, you know, the NFL, I, I just don't see how you can say, say they care about the players' health, and we see all these guys that die at young ages from the CTE, like you mentioned. I mean, Mike Webster, uh, numerous guys like that have died in their late 40s and early 50s. So, you know, if you're really being honest about the sport of football, it's a, it's a sport that should probably be considered being banned because of the physicality. I, I'm all for the free market, but these players should be explained exactly the, the risks they're taking instead of being lied to about it and you know let them make the decision i guess would would be an, another alternative but it's a gladiator sport and and for us to be surprised that this kind of stuff is happening is is kind of you know it's not reality 
Thank you, Mark, for that. I appreciate it. I think, you know, it's interesting. I had, you know, some people suggest that the NFL needs to look at different rules. I've had other people suggest that likely the medical um, condition that, uh, you know, that, you know, Hamill had or suffered from last night, Hamlin suffered from last night, um, is very similar to what we have seen with some players in youth baseball who get hit with a pitch in the chest or a lacrosse ball in the chest. Had one medical professional in the state of Oregon say, hey, that happened. We had a kid who lost consciousness and had a uh, went into a cardiac uh, arrest because of a ball that hit him in the chest. And, you know, we'll soon get the details on that. Football's a violent game. I think Mark hit it on the head. Like, you know, we're just now coming out of an era where the league was in such denial about the brain injuries, and now we're sort of accepting that, hey, there are some risks here, and this is why with quarterback sacks they call the game in a certain way, and this is why targeting has to be called. And, you know, maybe we can keep that in mind, as frustrated as we all sometimes get with the changes in the game, is that they're trying to make the game safer. And I've heard a bunch of theories. The best theory I've had, the most interesting theory I'd like to see tested is, you know, I had one person tell me that they could make the game of football safer if they removed the face masks from the helmets, meaning the players on the field would never lead with their helmet because if they were, they were going to risk, you know, breaking their own nose or whatnot. It would change the way people tackle. But I don't think it changes what happened in last night's game. It was such a freak thing as, you know, you have a have uh, you know a player catching a pass and then kind of turning into a defensive back and just look like a normal football player. And then all of a sudden, so all of a sudden Hamlin was down. Let's go to Mike in Portland. Mike's uh, been holding. Go ahead, Mike. John. Yes. You're on, Mike. Mike, not there. Let's put Mike back on hold. Steven, Peter, what was your reaction as you saw that last night? Yeah, I mean, I think it was just scary, right? When you see it happen, uh, you see a guy get up and then fall down for no reason, not knowing what's happening. I think that's that's the the ultimate thing that is scary about it is you know, usually, like in times right now with social media and everything, I feel like we know things as they're happening. But in that moment, we had no idea what was happening. And I think, you know, I will say I think we're, I got to give a lot of people credit on Twitter, like not you know assuming things are happening. It was mostly like you said, it was mostly prayers and thoughts out to the people. It wasn't these, it wasn't just people trying to get reports out as soon were as possible. Were you surprised by that? I was a little bit. I was too. I was very surprised. Um, I thought that there would be some fake reporting out there that try to just get the news out before it's actually confirmed, and so I was happy for that. And I think the you know the crews for the most part, the announcing crews and you know ESPN. Put in a t- really tough spot. They did as good as they could. Um, so, I because I don't know how I would react in that situation. I mean, I I put out there like you know in way lesser extent. Like I remember playing baseball when I was 13, and my best friend on the team he slid at home, and the catcher got up, and all I saw was his ankle and his foot like pointing the yeah. opposite direction. And I had a hard time going back to play in that game. This guy, ha- you know, almost died on the field. Like I can't imagine going back out and playing. So. It took the NFL a long time to get you know make that decision, which I think is wrong. But ultimately, they made the right decision to say, okay, we're not playing this game. And uh, you know, I, I want to say, like you said, 
it showed a lot of good in people, and I was actually kind of surprised that it, it went so well, I thought. Let's go to Mike in Portland. Mike's back. Go ahead, Mike. Are you there? I'm here, John. Happy New Year's, man. Happy New Year. Go ahead. So, but, John, check it out, man. I think that that injury and all future injuries can be eliminated because the NFL has a protocol in place for that. It's called the Tom Brady rule. If they applied that to football in general, nobody would get hurt. How is it that Tom Brady, almost 50 years old, he never get hurt, but you have young quarterbacks like Tua and the quarterback, I think, for the Pittsburgh Steelers. These young boy quarterbacks, man, they're getting hurt out there. So there's rules in place, there's protocols, but it's only applied to Tom Brady. So they can put that out and make it applicable to everybody in football, and you will eliminate these kind of injuries. That's my take on it. Um, that's the way I see it, man. Yeah. I don't think you're wrong in that you see the game called differently for quarterbacks and the game called differently for successful quarterbacks who are pocket passers versus quarterbacks who, who get out and run. I think the I think that the officials call the game differently all the time. I think it's a lot of there's a lot of subjectivity that goes on in officiating. Peter Sampson, what did you think last night as you watched the game? Yeah, it was it was wild. Now at the moment that it happened, I was uh, having dinner. We're uh, uh, dinner at the table. No uh, electronic devices allowed, and my phone just started blowing up. I mean, just vibrating constantly. And we finished up, and then you know I saw what's going on. And and I'll be honest, I so I had the TV on in the background, but it was a uh, Trailblazers uh, pregame coverage because I uh, wanted to see Gary Payton the second make his return. I flipped over to the coverage, and I mean, my first thought is just. I mean, how obviously you're, you know, you're you're praying for uh, Hamlin that he's going to be all right, and you think about the teammates, and I mean the broadcasting crew. I, I gave them, like you said, a pretty wide berth because how do you cover that? It's such a challenge to be accurate, yeah. to be respectful. Uh, I, I, you don't know what's going on, and you're you're walking such a thin line. So, like, could you know certain things have been better? I totally agree. Adam Schefter and and Booger McFarland. I think it was Seuss Colburn was the other one. Just yeah. kind of going around in circles. It wasn't great, but I mean, they were doing the best they could. It was just a terrible, terrible circumstance. I just wanted them to be people in that moment. And I think the note I would send to them is, hey, remember you're a person first. So Troy Aikman as you are sitting there, you just saw a player, you know, get hit in the chest, uh, you know, stand up like everything was okay, take two steps back and then fall. And then we all thought, oh, he had the wind knocked out of him. And no, he didn't. Uh, CPR, AED on the field, ambulance on the field. Um, I want Troy Aikman in that moment to, to tell me what it's like to be a player in that situation and relate and you know, maybe even talk about walking away from the game himself. Like, hey, look, you know, uh, this is part of what drove me to retire after all those concussions. I want to—if that's true, I want to hear it. Like, you know, the that part of the game. And then Joe Buck—he's been around so many stadiums, but I—I'm sure they had a bunch of people in their ears trying to tell them what to do, tell them what to say, give them information. That happens. I just wanted that, guys. What do you think if if this were a playoff game, if this were a Super Bowl, what do they do? They're 100 percent playing the game again. They restarted it. And, you know, there's been a couple of reports out there. Again, it's hard to say what's true, what's not. Michael Silver, um, he, he had tweeted out he's talked to enough people. He said this is how it went down. The NFL's first impulse was to keep playing. Joe Burrow was told to warm up. 
and that was the plan. But then the players and coaches all said no and just walked off. So I think if it's a you know if it's a playoff game, it's a, if it's a Super Bowl, the NFL is 100% putting it back out there. And I think that's the sad part. Like we talk about all the good things that happen, the NFL like especially I think like in football culture. Like you look at college football, you look at the you know whole situation back at Penn State, you know years ago with Sandusky, like how they just freaked out because you know Joe Paterno they had a statue they didn't want the statue brought down like things are bigger than sports and sometimes I think especially football culture we don't take it that way we think football is the most important thing and last night was another example of the NFL being bigger than actual people and what what you know the mass audience wanted and that's just to cancel the game like just have it be over because this is way too big like the he almost died on the field I don't know, man. I, I think for sure they would have restarted if it was a playoff game. Yeah, I kind of wondered if it were a Super Bowl game, you know, how much outcry would there be? How upset would people be? I want your phone calls, 503-417-7575. We'll get a visit from Tyson Alger, the I-5 quarter coming up. Uh, I want to play Ryan Clark's comments last night. I thought he hit it out of the park as a former player trying to explain to the rest of us what that was like. Uh, I want your take as well, though, what it was like for you in your living room uh, watching this game or wherever you heard about it. What do you make of the NFL? Leave it here. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. I still want to know what you thought of uh, what you saw and what you've learned about the NFL. Buffalo Bills defensive back DeMar Hamlin remains in critical condition in University of Cincinnati Medical Center. 503-417-7575 is the phone number. Uh, let's, uh, let's bring on our guest, uh, Tyson Alger of the I-5 Corridor. does a fantastic job covering sports up and down the I-5 Corridor. Tyson, before we get into... The Ducks, the Beavers, Washington, Washington State, all that stuff. Um, what did you make of DeMar Hamlin and uh, Monday Night Football and the events last night? It was uh, it was just a really sad and, and tough scenario. And I, I know a lot of the kind of the discourse online talked about a lot of, like, how the NFL handled it and how the coverage and who was saying what. But, I mean, I, I think it was really easy to get lost in kind of a lot of the noise that it was just like – you know, millions of people have just watched a, a young, successful athlete have uh, an awfully dramatic and very, very serious situation in front of everybody. And I, I think it was just kind of shocking. And, you know, it, it really made me think of, and I don't want to, you know, go go too dark here, but the, the, yeah. the very first, the, the very, the very first uh, funeral I ever went to, I was about 16 years old and uh, a player from my, high school team who had graduated and gone on to play for BYU uh, club hockey. Um, he had suffered a, a cardiac arrest in a game at BYU in 2006. Uh, he had taken a slap shot to the chest and it just timed it perfectly where it, it stopped his heart and he died right there on the ice. And it was somebody that I had grown up playing with. And I, yeah, it just, it just, it just took me to that moment in 2006 of, of being at a funeral because of a sport that like we all grew up in the club playing and, and that sort of thing. And it was just, uh, it was kind of a, a, a surreal moment last night. With the NFL, uh, you know, do you believe if this were a playoff game or the Super Bowl that they would have postponed? I don't think they would have postponed for that. You know, it, it, it's, you know, you've gotten a lot of back and forth on what the NFL actually said or what they didn't say, but like, 
I, I think that they were weighing the pros and cons last night of, of what it meant to them financially to cancel that game, which shouldn't have been a, an issue. But if there was more than just it being a Monday night game riding on it, like I don't think the NFL has shown us anything uh, in the past that leads us to believe that it probably would have done the right thing there. But, in you know, I, I understand there's a, a lot more going on to, to moving and canceling and doing those things. And I think a lot of us, you know, realize when we're sitting at home and tweeting, but like there, there was, there was no way they should have kept playing that game last night. That, that would have been ridiculous. And it would have been ridiculous if it was a playoff game and it would have been ridiculous if it was a Super Bowl. I hated that they left that lingering for so long. Tyson Alger with us. Uh, covering sports up and down the I-5 corridor. Um, you know, the bowl season uh, for the Pac-12, I want to talk, get your thoughts on that a little bit. Uh, uh, you know, the Ducks and the Beavers and the Huskies, all on the I-5 corridor, all turned in victories. The three victories in the Pac-12 came from came from your coverage area. Yeah, you know, it was a, it was a nice it was a nice plus for a change. You know, it feels like a lot of the time, you know, you come on for like the January post bowl game uh, obituary for the Pac-12, and it's like, oh, this game could have gone this way or this win could have gone that way. But you know, not only did a team like Oregon, which wins its bowl games, you know, have have a nice showing, but or Oregon State looked as good as Oregon State's looked all year. Uh, Washington looked great, and you know, I, I I just really think that the momentum is really shifting here kind of at least for this year onto the West coast favor, because with, with the quarterbacks coming back with the quarterbacks that have moved over to this region, like I, a lot of times these bowl seasons kind of feel like an ending point, but I really do feel like for the Pac-12 that this is something that they can, they can jump off of, especially with it being the teams that are staying sticking around too. Like it would be, it would be a kind of a, kind of a weirder discussion if, if, you know, Oregon State and Washington had lost, but we're still celebrating, like, big USC or UCLA wins. Like, I think this worked exactly how the Pac-12 wanted it to uh, uh, this holiday season. DJ Uyunglele goes to uh, Oregon State. Bo Nix announces he's coming back to Oregon. What was the bigger development in your mind? Um, Boy, that's that's a really tough question because we we saw how bad Oregon – was this year when when Bo Nix wasn't healthy and, and thankfully for the Ducks it wasn't for a, a ton of time but um, you know he missed a play against Washington and they collapsed he wasn't healthy in the Oregon State game and they collapsed but you know all in and so that leads me to believe that if they didn't have Bo Nix coming back next year and who knows if Dante Moore would have stayed or went like you would think it would be for the Ducks but Looking at Oregon State and what they have coming back, I mean, Oregon State was legitimately good quarterback play away from being in the playoff this year. They lose to USC by, what was it, a field goal? Uh, They lose to Washington after blowing a lead in the fourth quarter when they just needed some sort of passing attack. I think they threw for like 89 yards in that game. And even if you go to the Utah game where it looks like they got blown out, well, it certainly doesn't help that they threw four interceptions, one of those being a pick six. So, you know, with this roster coming back, with what Jonathan Smith has built in Corvallis, you know, I don't expect DJU to come in and be a Heisman candidate or to be the savior. But if he can even just replicate what he did, you know, the last three years at Clemson, uh, I think Oregon State goes into next season as a legitimate playoff contender. And, and looking at the Ducks, like I just don't, I haven't seen enough improvement from their defense to, to even lead me down down that path quite yet. Does the calculus change for? Oregon State as a favorite because I think they sort of enjoy being a bit of an underdog. They are they would be a favorite. Yeah, you know, is that a is that a challenge or is that a new thing for them to have to manage or 
uh, does, uh, you know, do you just embrace that as a, hey, that's part of, part of winning, that's what happens? I, I mean, it, it, it's definitely something that they're going to have to manage and embrace. I mean, like this year, like I can't imagine like Caleb Williams and, and uh, Lincoln Riley were really anticipating much of a, much of a matchup going into like a, a half stadium in Corvallis for that one. But that's, that's what they got. And I, I do think Oregon State has kind of thrived a little bit on that with that like chip on your shoulder, we're going to catch you when you're not looking sort of mentality. But I just, I think the way that they're built, especially with how good that defense was this year, like I just, they just play consistent, you know, and they, they're not reliant upon needing a, a, you know, a hot start from the offense or the quarterback to do this or that. Like they, they won 10 games this year without being able to pass the football. And, and so I, I think that if you're adding to that, like obviously it's going to be much different expectations this next year, but they also get some breaks in the schedule too. Um, I, I think it could be a problem being the team that's chased for, for some programs, but I, I'm really excited to see what Jonathan Smith does now that, like, I mean, the rebuild's been done for a couple of years. Now they're, they're at the point where they're, like, adding, you know, the, the suites and washing the windows and, and then really making that thing uh, <laughs> making that thing shine. But it, it will be a fascinating year next year because, you know, again, it's hard to discount the Ducks, too. You know, they just put together another top 10 class, which is something that Oregon State doesn't come close to doing. And it's, it's just fascinating how these two teams have gotten to this point of success and, and talent without wall being constructed in very, very different ways. We're talking to Tyson Alger of the I-5 Corridor, the I-5Corridor.com. If you are interested in reading uh, more of Tyson, and you should be, he's covering the heck out of everything up and down I-5. Uh, let me throw a question at you. Uh, Pac-12 Media Day will happen next July. I'm going to guess they're going to hold it in Vegas, not L.A. But uh, let's say they give you a ballot, Tyson, and they say uh, pick the top three teams preseason, way too early, Tyson Alger poll. Who's one, two, three in the Pac-12 in football? I'm going to go the three teams we just talked about. I'm going to go Oregon State, uh uh, Oregon and Washington. I, I just think, or I, you know, I think Michael Penix is freaking phenomenal up in Seattle. And for them to go, what did they end up finishing with the bowl win, eleven and two this year after last year's debacle? After Mario Cristobal called them the worst thing that's ever happened to college football. Like for them to, for them to flip that, get that momentum, and then bring Penix back. Like I, I think Washington is a team that, especially if you're an Oregon fan, like you really want kind of want to watch what's happening here because I, I think the Huskies have long been kind of a, a sleeping giant, you know, and, and, you know, especially, especially as this conference has kind of turned into really realizing like how important recruiting is. Like if, if Seattle starts getting some wins and they get some momentum, like that's, that's a pretty attractive place to recruit to. So I, I just really like the stability of these three teams up here. I mean, obviously USC with Williams returning and the talent that they're bringing in, like they're, they're going to be a factor and they're going to be in the mix. But like, again, we just saw this last week or we just saw yesterday. What I think a lot of us who have watched USC all season know is like, they can't play defense and they couldn't play defense the season before. They didn't get any better on that. And unless they actually like, address that i just think a lot of the the rest of the conference is catching up so you know and you know here i'm saying that and i haven't mentioned utah and that seems like every time no utah, utah no it's, it's, usc it's, fans yeah. are gonna be mad at you you know it's yeah yeah <laughs> so you know the the with this pretty much guarantees the utes are going to be heading toward a third straight rose bowl next year <laughs> but uh that's, that's that's where the that's where the corridor is sitting right now i5corridor.com tyson alger thank you for joining us i appreciate you man Hey, thanks so much, John. Happy New Year. There it is. You can subscribe to him, read him, 
He's gone rogue like I've gone rogue. Uh, coming up, your phone calls, and Ryan in Portland's going to lead us off after the break. Uh, I want you to tell me what you made of the NFL. What If this were a Super Bowl, would we be having a whole different conversation? Um, and, you know, look, I was proud of the coaches and the players last night because it was evident you could tell. You know body language. I know body language. It was evident they were not playing. And it was just a matter of time before the NFL came to grips with the idea that even if they wanted this game to go on last night, even if for television dollars and whatnot they needed the game to be played, it wasn't going to be played. There was no way that the coaches uh, and the players were going to get out there and play it. And I was proud of the players for doing that. And and I thought a lot about the college players and the pro players that we've watched over the years. And, you know, I, I just I think there was a lot of good going on amid a terrible, terrible, scary incident on the field. We'll talk about it. I want your phone calls on it. 503-417-7575. Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Voice of American Soccer, John Strong will be with us in the 4 o'clock hour. I'm going to ask him uh, what uh, what that's like when you're broadcasting a major world sporting event. And and what would it be on his mind if he were the broadcaster on such an event? And, you know, we had, uh, uh, you know, the unthinkable kind of tragedy that uh, unfolded last night um, uh, on Monday Night Football. DeMar Hamlin rushed off the field in an ambulance after CPR. Uh, I want to take some phone calls. Uh, I want to play a little bit of Ryan Clark's comments from last night. I thought he hit the uh, home run last night as far as the broadcasters were concerned. But I'll take your phone calls as well right now. 503-417-7575. Ryan's in Portland. Ryan, welcome. Yeah, I think uh, the fact that the five-minute thing last night is another thing I want to touch on. I think that was just a real quick thought before like it was not about being insensitive i think there's a lot of people on the radio trying to get things figured out i think someone just probably shot out the number five minutes and after they realized how incent i mean how much time they're going to need after that i mean obviously went away went away like i think that five minutes was just something to put out there to get all the it's a production then you know for the tv and they needed something to tell people and something to something to, you know, get things organized. I mean, they probably, after they thought about it, they re-signed that number to let's see what's happening here to get this game started. You know, I don't think they, you know, they just needed something to say to the radio crew. And, you know, they were just trying to get a number out there for the production. But also, uh, yeah, I think, uh, you know, it was great to see the team unity and uh, the teams get together, and I, I do believe that is why the game stopped last night. I think there's too much money for the NFL to have stopped that. I think it was as soon as Buffalo went to the locker room in Cincinnati, you saw the training staff pack everything up. You know they weren't getting back out there, so they showed that on TV. They're packing things up and putting them in the locker room after about 15 minutes of being in the locker room. They knew the game wasn't going to start. I think they were just trying to make sure the team got out of there before the crowd did, and then announced it to the crowd so the team could get out of the locker room and uh, get on their way to the airport and you know get out safely. Um, and also, uh, I just wanted to say, yeah, the announcers, like I said, they they were in there talking about the game for 
you know, an hour, you know, maybe, what, 30, 45 minutes, and, you know, they were all stunned and didn't want to say the wrong thing and make anybody upset, so they looked bad. So, you know, they like I said, they didn't probably have enough practice on instances like this, yeah. and, you know, maybe they'll do better next time. And one yeah, more thing sure for you, what did yeah. you? What did, you, what did you think about when your daughter came out, and how did you feel about that when your daughter <laughs> came and me. said, you know, did it make you have a tear? I mean, it's, my, son, my son's nine years old. I probably would have had a little tear and knowing that, hey, you know, she's growing up right, and you raised her right, and you feel like she's a step ahead in life. Yeah, you know? I did, but I also, you know, Anna's going to join us later in the 4 o'clock hour, but it, I wondered in that moment if, if I should have shielded her better. And I'm not sure I did the right thing or the wrong thing, but I also I I love her little heart, and both all, all of our kids have good hearts. They care about people. They take care of their classmates. That's the stuff we're most proud of as parents. I love that she was thinking about Hamlin last night, but I also was like, gosh, she's eight. You know, my wife even said, what did she see? And I said, no, the teams, you know, they shielded the player on the field, you know, pretty effectively between the ambulance and the players. Like, I don't think ESPN's camera crew was insensitive. Um, I also think a lot of people, including myself, when the injury happened, did not think that it was going to result in, you know, DeMar Hamill, Hamill ending up at the hospital. I, in fact, took... I was one of the people who took the video of the hit because I thought, what a strange hit, and he's down on the field, and I tweeted it. When I saw the ambulance come out and I realized this is a serious injury, I deleted the tweet, and I think a lot of other people did too. And ESPN had shown the review, oh, the replay over and over and over again, and I think when they realized this is potentially life-threatening, they stopped showing it. So I think a lot of people were reacting in live time, making decisions for themselves and for their audiences in real time. And I don't expect people to get that perfect. But I thought Ryan Clark hit a home run with his comments on ESPN, on the Scott Van Pelt show that comes later in the evening. I want to play that coming up. Plus, I want more of your phone calls at 503-417-7575. B-F-F-T. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald faced truth. A little bit of news on uh, social media. Josh Reed of WIVB Radio in Cincinnati is reporting that he spoke with DeMar Hamlin's uncle. This is how we're getting news. But uh, apparently he was on 100% oxygen to start. His uncle telling the reporter that he's now down to 50% oxygen says the family's hanging in there. He also thanked people uh, for their continued prayers. I want to talk a little bit about Hamlin. I want your reaction. What were your first thoughts? i got to be honest, when I realized it was a heart issue, I thought about Hank Gathers. I thought about uh, David Heller, the Central Catholic High School basketball player who, uh, who died of a heart condition at the age of 17 in 2005. I thought about Reggie Lewis. Other athletes who have collapsed on the field. 
I want to know where your head was. We'll take some phone calls in this segment, but I also want to play the thoughts from Ryan Clark, um, who I thought hit it on the hit the nail on the head, so to speak. You know, and I thought that the broadcast crews and the studio shows that ESPN had as part of Monday Night Football fell short, but Ryan Clark gave a pretty powerful two minutes on TV. Former uh, safety in the NFL, played football at LSU. Um, a guy who sort of captured what I guess what I was looking for when it came to the incident that we saw on the field. Short of us having a medical expert tell us exactly what happened to DeMar Hamlin, the next thing that I wanted were players in the league to explain to me what that's like, what watching that was like. Unthinkable. Here's Ryan Clark, who I thought hit it out of the park. I think the, the first thing, this is the song. This is about DeMar Hamlin, mm -hmm. and um, it's about a young man at 24 years old that was living his dream that a few hours ago was getting ready to play the biggest game of his NFL career, and there's probably nowhere else in the world he wanted to be. And now he fights for his life. And when DeMar Hamlin falls to the turf and when you see the medical staff rush to the field and both teams or on the field, you realize this isn't normal. You realize this isn't just football. And so many times in this game, and in our job as well, we use the cliches, you know, I'm ready to die for this. I'm willing to give my life for this. It's, it's time to go to war. And I think sometimes we use those things so much, we forget that part of living this dream is putting your life at risk. And tonight, you know, we got to see a side of football that is extremely ugly, a side of football that no one ever, that side of football that no one ever wants to see mm -hmm. or never wants to admit exists. When you see both teams on the field crying in that way, your first thought is DeMar Hamlin. Yep. The second thought is his family. And this isn't about a football player, right? This is about a human. This is about a brother. This is about a son. This is about a friend. This is about someone who is loved by so many that you have to watch go through this. I, um, I dealt with this before, and I watched my teammates for days come to my hospital bed and just cry. I had them call me and tell me that they didn't think I was going to make it, and now this team has to deal with that, and they have no answers. Mm -hmm. And so the next time I think that we get upset at our favorite fantasy player <laughs> or we're, we're upset that the, the guy on our team doesn't make the play, and we're saying he's worthless, and we're saying you get to make all this money, we should remember that these men are putting their lives on the line to live their dream. And tonight, DeMar Hamlin's dream became a nightmare for not only himself, but his family and his entire team. Ms. Ryan Clark, uh, I think summarizing it beautifully off the top of his head, what it's about for players. Uh, I want to know what you thought of what happened last night in the game. Uh, and has it changed your attitude towards football in general? Um, you know, I think my wife made the comment last night. She said, you know, gosh, I'd be really concerned if we had a son who was playing football. And I want to know what you think about that and if that changes your mind at all. 503-417-7575. Let's go to Pat. Pat's in northeast Portland. Pat, what's on your mind? Hey, John. Um, a very similar thing happened. Uh, my kid used to play for Eastern Oregon. And you know, I don't know if you remember this, but about seven years ago, a kid named Dylan, 
in practice uh, got in a, in a uh, hit, they hit each other. Somebody hit it, you know, on his head, and he uh, had to be lifelighted to uh, to Boise, and uh, he passed away. And you know, when that happened, and, you know, my kid's actually on the team, right? Right. It, you know, a lot of stuff goes through your mind. I mean, I, and I'm a, I love football. I'm a football fanatic. My kids all played it. And uh, but boy, I tell you, you know, it, it, to see he had a, that that guy had a kid, or had, I believe he had a kid and a wife even. And uh, you see a guy die on the football field like that. I mean, it, <laughs> it, a lot of things go through your mind. I know that this is going to, in a few little, little while, this is all going to you know, kind of go away a little bit. But as much as those guys whack each other as fast as they are, the surprise to me is that things like this don't happen more often. I mean, right. they, I mean, they're doing everything they can to get you know the safety as high as they can. And that's why I think a lot of my friends complain about, oh, you know, oh, that's a hit to the head. Oh, that's BS. That's not a hit to the head. Well, you know what? Football's got to stop hitting people in the head as much as possible or the game's going to go away. Yeah, that's I think a- it's part of that is people understanding when the officials call the game differently what they're trying to accomplish. They've been given a directive from the league to make the game safer. And they're saying, look, we can't have targeting. We can't have these unobstructed hits on the quarterback. Um, uh, that's all part of it. But are fans willing to accept that as we get removed from the Hamlin injury? And hopefully it's just an injury, and hopefully he recovers, and hopefully we look back. I'd love to hear from him and hear interviews with him and what he thought. But people at the stadium reported last night that nobody left their seat while this was going on. The stadium went silent. The entire Bills team was around the ambulance. The entire Bengals team got down on one knee. Um, the uh, Bills fans and Bengals fans broke out in prayer. Um, uh, Bengals fans and Bills fans hugged each other. Um, you know, grown men were crying. Strangers were linking arms. Everybody was shocked. Everybody was kind of realizing this is bigger than football. Mike is in Salem. The number is 503-417-7575. Mike, go ahead. Hi, John. Appreciate your show all the time. Uh, Thank you. Just a quick question about a fundamental change that could be made conceivably, probably not likely, but uh, if you took the helmet face mask and uh, maybe some of the padding away, mm-hmm. uh, it's not like it's not like this was a head injury, but there was a helmet involved in the chest of the uh, of the player, and I. I'd say rugby gets away without any of these kind of injuries. They play with no pads. They have full tackling. I, I think it'd be everybody would consider it a compromise in the current NFL, but I think it's a question worth raising about the head trauma and the near-death experience this time of, uh, of a player just making a normal play in football. So, and, I'll, and I'll admit, like, right away I thought, concussion? Did he? Did he – literally get up and then just fall back with a concussion. And then it turned out, no, he got hit in the upper chest, left side. And, you know, doctors will tell you that if you were trying to stop somebody's heart, that's where you would uh, bring a blunt force trauma to try to interrupt the electrical um, signal of the heart. So um, I don't know. 
I don't know what the answer is. I started looking at rugby rules and how you know they force you to wrap up when you tackle in rugby ex- instead of just launching yourself into somebody. Um, I do think like when you look back, and look, I had I had Red Elder as a driver's ed and health teacher in high school. Red played in the NFL. He played in the leather helmet NFL, and he used to tell us. You know, because we're playing high school football. He says, I don't know how you guys tackle with those face masks and helmets. We never put our face in there because if you did, you'd get it. And so I do think that, you know, the game, the way the game is played has changed as equipment has improved. And certainly as helmets have, you know, it got better in our life, in my lifetime. Helmets have dramatically better than they were when the NFL was in the 80s and 70s and even into the 90s. The helmets are better and safer, and therefore the players, I think, feel more comfortable out there. But I don't know if that was going to change what happened. Guys, do you think rule changes could come out of this? I think potentially, but I also think that because it's the first time and it's, it was so shocking to all of us, like at some point I, I always had the idea of like someone's probably going to die on the football field. Like just the way the game is played – that is gonna happen. I think, like, I think ultimately the NFL probably thought at some point this is gonna happen, so we have to be somewhat ready for it. But I don't necessarily think rule changes are gonna happen right away because of this, because we're all just brainstorming right now of what's gonna happen. And it, it is, it's not an isolated incident because people get hurt all the time, but it is an isolated incident where not many times have guys have needed CPR on the field. So I don't necessarily think right away there's gonna be rule changes. Yeah. And, and for people who haven't, I. I unfortunately have seen CPR performed more times in my lifetime than I would ever wish on anybody else. And I just have been around incidents where people were drowning. And, you know, it happened when we were on vacation for Christmas vacation a couple of few weeks ago. You know, we we took a trip and we were in Hawaii and we never do that. We never, we're not that family that goes to Hawaii during the holidays. We're just That's not who we are. But this year, for whatever reason, we said, let's go to Hawaii. Well, we took a walk one morning. We just went for a walk along the ocean. And we came upon the lifeguards, you know, doing CPR on a guy who was in the water. And let me tell you, it shook me. And we didn't have a game to play. It shook me. It shook anybody else, I think, who saw it. And I think if you have witnessed somebody fighting for their life and have and a person that's trying to help them by doing CPR help them fight for their life i think it is a traumatic event and i think the people in the stadium the players who were on the field the other players in the NFL who all sort of played witness to that last night i think all have uh, i think something to think about peter sampson do, are we going to see rule changes man i don't know I mean, you know, you think about uh, baseball. Uh, was it Carl Mays hit Ray Chapman, killed him? They outlawed the 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 spitter. It, it's just the fundamental nature of football doesn't lend itself to that. And I say that I'm sort of one of those guys that maybe you know, I the NFL is probably my least favorite of the big sports for exactly you know, it's the injury reason, the concussion re- uh, reason. I never really considered uh, you know an impact like this you know affecting someone's heart. I've seen it happen in hockey. I, I just don't know how they can really manage it and keep it the same fundamental game. Yeah, we see, I think, there are cases in basketball of players having heart conditions, and I know the David Heller Foundation has done a really nice job of getting those AED uh, devices in, into a lot of the schools, more than 300 schools and high schools in the 
in the uh, listening area of our show have had the AEDs placed in the gymnasiums because you get young people who may have an undetected heart condition who are playing a sport that requires high cardiovascular fitness. And so, you know, we see a Hank Gathers, we see a Reggie Lewis. What, you know, we see those things. I would have gathered, like if you had told me, hey, we're going to see a player, a professional athlete collapse on a field and it's going to be a heart issue, I would have said NBA um, just because of the fitness that is required out there. I don't know, maybe I'm naive. But it struck me last night as Hamlin went down that you've got a violent game, you have a lot of players in there, and I just don't know. The players who were leaning over with their hands you know, covering their faces and they were crying and sobbing uh, on the field after the game. I don't know how the league doesn't pay attention to that, but I think you're right, Peter, in that it would fundamentally change the game if you said, hey, we're not going to allow X, Y, Z, you know, we're going to try to take some of the violence out of the game. I think you would fundamentally change the game, and I don't know if people are going to watch that. Let's just be real about human nature. Uh, People get upset when the quarterback is protected. People get upset when their team is called for targeting. I hear people say, I'm done with football because they, they it's no longer football. Well, maybe this provides an opportunity for college football and the NFL to go, hey, you know, there may be some empathy out there right now from the audience. So you can even go back to this weekend. I mean, take a look at that USC Tulane game on that final drive, that helmet-to-helmet hit yep. that both players got knocked out on. But since it was a you know be concussion type of thing, I think we're mostly not immune. Immune's the wrong word, but we're so used to seeing that where this situation on Monday Night Football had to deal with the heart. Like we don't see that very often, so it is such a different type of thing, and it's so out of the ordinary. I feel like because we're so used to what type of injuries for what sports. Like I'm with you, a heart a heart thing would be more like a basketball thing, not a football thing. So I, I just I find it so interesting that. It, you know, that if there are going to be rule changes, like it is going to dramatically change the game of football, but does one situation allow for that? Yeah, and I think you're right. I think you were looking for it. We're all desensitized. Like, yeah. we, we see the concussion thing over and over and over again, you know. And, and I thought, by the way, we haven't even got to the bowl games. We will coming up. But I thought that was targeting, you know. And I was like, oh, that's clearly targeting. And, you know, we still don't know what they're going to call and what they're not going to call. Uh, 503-417-7575 is the number. Anna's popping into the studio. We'll talk about the Pac-12 bowl games and a whole bunch more coming up. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald Face truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Pac-12 went three and four in the seven bowl games. I went 6-1 and one against the spread. How about that, Steven? How about them apples? Yeah, not bad. I was going to say, you know, better mention your record. I did mention it on social media after I was 6-0, and and, of course, I promptly dropped the next game to go 6-1. and one. I had Utah beating Penn State. Well, I had, uh, I had texted you because I said I like Penn State, but then you're like, yeah, I'm mm-hmm. 6-0 oh against the spread and made me question everything about it. Well, I think if Cam Rising stays healthy, it's a really close game, but I still think Penn State appeared to me to be uh, – to be in control of that game regardless. And I think it would have taken a lot of magic from Cam Rising for Utah to pull that out. I'm curious now if Rising will announce that he's coming back for another season at Utah. I don't see much of an NFL career out there for him. And I know the NIL collective at Utah has its act together now, and so I'd be curious to know if he's getting offered a whole bunch of money. 
Anna has popped into the studio. Anna, you were not watching live last night uh, on Monday Night Football when DeMar Hamlin uh, was, uh, his heart stopped, and he ended up on the ground. Me and the 8-year-old were enjoying the game up until that point. By the way, she picked the Bengals. Um, and uh, so that left me with the Bills. You finally that, got a football buddy in the house. I know. You're so happy. I am. But she's, uh, she was a little, I mean, I want to say she was distraught by it. She seemed concerned. She seemed very concerned about what was going on. But I also think the broadcast of Joe Buck and Troy Aikman fell short. They were kind of fumbling around, not saying much, just being somber. Didn't really have much to say for about 15 or 20 minutes. Now, you've been in that position, so to speak, on live news where you are covering breaking news. You have no script. Suddenly, you don't have much information. you got to fill some time. Help talk us through what a broadcaster goes through on live television. Well, I feel for them because it's not an easy situation to be in as a broadcaster um, it's obviously not content that they're used to talking about. Like, those guys are very good, arguably, at talking about football and football strategy and plays and making all sorts of commentary about that. But when something like that happens, I don't want to say it's completely out of their wheelhouse, but it's really tricky. And I I almost don't blame them in a way for not saying much because uh, you can actually make the mistake of saying too much and then wading into stuff that you shouldn't um, but if they if it seemed like they were struggling for things to say I would say you know they they needed some help probably um, people who were researching um, off-air and could give them information you know about the player about his background um, you know factual things that could help lend perspective to the moment because I think that's really the value that broadcasters can bring in a moment like that you don't have to be communicating the emotion because the emotions already there anybody who saw this thing live um, you know many people were in tears and I I struggle to even talk about it without um, going to pieces even though I didn't watch it live um, so, I mean, I think the greatest value that broadcasters can offer in a moment like that is to give people a sense of context, a sense of understanding for how unusual it is for this to happen in this way. And, you know, that's that's where their chops would be shown. Yeah, and uh, I think, you know, it was evident to me they kept going, we're going to take another commercial break. They had nothing to talk about, and you could tell that their producers and reporters at ESPN were frantically trying to get a hold of the NFL to find out what was going on. And they were trying to buy some time. But then they were just kind of showing these wide shots of the stadium. And the players down there, what I really wanted was, you know, Troy Aikman, former player, guy who walked away from the game because of concussions. I want him to talk a little bit about that. Right. Like in that moment, like, you know, if I could get in his ear, I would have been like, Troy, fill some time here. Talk yeah. to people about what it's like to be a player playing a dangerous game. Right. Like when you suited up, did you did you know every day when you went to work? Like I could, you know, maybe I don't come home in the same condition I left. Like mm -hmm. I think a lot of players post NFL career talk about that stuff. You don't often get players while they're playing talking about it because I think it's really challenging for them. Yeah, and again, you know, in the moment, it's hard to know exactly where to go. So 
some direction for them probably would have helped. Um, on the commercial break thing, in their defense, there were probably paid spots that, you know, um, the network, whatever network it was on, you know, the bills still have to get paid. And so that is probably a reality that they were faced with um, to have to go yeah. to commercial break and run those. I would be curious to talk to a TV executive on that front because what they were doing was they were coming back for like three or four minutes and they were going right out to break again. Yeah. So were they jamming in a bunch of commercial breaks knowing that the game probably was going to be suspended or postponed trying to get paid? Like <laughs> was the network going, hey, we got to run these spots? Uh, it's part of the contract, and we might as well run them right now. Or, I don't know. Like, yeah. I want to know that. Yeah. Because the NFL clearly lost money last night because uh -huh. TV is going to go, hey, we're not paying for that. That yeah. wasn't a full game. Right. What do we do with that? Right. You're going to give us a makeup or whatnot. So I, I got to think that there was a financial concern there. But for me, I didn't want to see that game finish. Like, if they had finished the game, I wasn't going to watch it. I had already made my mind up. Well, I don't know that the, you know, whatever money lost um, can be made up because those those commercial spots are paid well in advance and scheduled out throughout the season. So it's not like you can go back and recreate the evening when it comes to the ads. Like, I think it's just kind of a sunk cost. All right. Um, were you, were you, you asked me because the eight-year-old last night, we're on the sofa. We're watching, uh, you know, what is it, 1923, one of the uh, prequels to Yellowstone. Yeah. And here comes the pitter-patter of footsteps down the stairs. And I pause it, and we turn around, and the 8-year-old is standing there. I thought she's going to say, I'm hungry, uh -huh. or I need water, yeah. or can I pet the dog. Right. Or what? Any of which, you know, are yeah. on the table at that time of night, yes. Instead, she says... Is there any update on the player? Yeah. It crushed me because I was like, she's not able to sleep. Am I a bad dad for letting her watch the ambulance, the players, the aftermath? Because I thought she already was aware I needed her to get some closure. I wanted him to rise to his feet and walk to the sideline. Everyone's going to cheer. Mm -hmm. He's going to be okay. Or they put him on a stretcher, but he gives a thumbs up. Hey, he, look, he's going to be okay. But instead, it was CPR, it was an AED, it was an oxygen, he's in the ambulance, the ambulance disappears, and it's very somber on the broadcast. Am I a bad dad for letting an 8-year-old watch that? Be I, real. Are you mad at me at all? I was initially, because I was like, oh, come on, why did you, you know, let that play on? And then the more I've thought about it today, the more I realize, you know, we have these conversations with our kids. Death is a part of life. Um, and thank goodness he's still alive and in critical condition. Um, but it's not, I mean, it, it would, I, I actually think it would have been worse just to see him go down like that and then turn the TV off. Right. Because she's not watching, you know, the life saving efforts of the first responders who are on scene and doing their best to save his life. Like, I don't know. I don't think there's a right answer, but the more I thought about it today, I, the more I realized it probably did make sense because she's in our home. She's with you. It's not like she's just watching it alone. Yeah. And you're able to kind of talk with her through it. And, you know, we these are conversations that we can, we can have as a family. I can that. tell you, in my defense, I was telling her they have the best medical professional. Somebody earlier in the show said, hey, outside of him having a cardiac event in a hospital, 
this might have been the next best place because both teams have doctors, both teams have trainers, both teams have a, multi, a training staff that is trained in CPR. There's multiple AED devices inside that stadium that were utilized. You have the University of Cincinnati Medical Center, which is a trauma-level hospital nearby. Like, it, like, there were some factors there that were in um, the favor, I guess, of Damar Hamlin as he was fighting for his life. And so I was trying to explain to her, like, hey, you know, they have the best people there. And also, he's young. You know, and I and I do think that's a factor. Like when you look at young people who suffer medical issues, like a young fit person, he's got you know he's got a fighting shot here. Like, so um, I still think oh, it's incredibly traumatic. And so I was wondering last night as she was struggling to sleep, I can't remember what I told her. Like as we sent her back to bed, I just said he's in critical condition, that he's got a pulse. We're going to know more tomorrow in the ne in the coming days. Um, you know, I just wanted to give her something that would help her get to sleep, I guess. Right. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. That's a hard one. I wonder what, I mean, I'm sure there were lots of other people that were watching with kids, and I wonder right. how people handled that. You said this last night. I'm going to bring this out publicly. We've got three daughters. If we had a son, would you let him play football? Uh, well, I actually said it last night with our girls because I'm – not I, I I don't think it's out of the possibility that one of them would want to play <laughs> to be honest at some point um I I think we talked about it a little bit I said I'd be okay with like you know Soji the youngest being a kicker or a punter she's not gonna be happy being a kicker or a punter I know she's gonna um, want the ball I actually give me the damn ball I, is what she'd say I encouraged our middle one the eight-year-old to actually play flag football because I think it's great exercise and it's really essentially like tag right and I had a friend coaching a team this last fall so I was trying to get her to do that but I don't know let's go to the phone lines Jason's in Beaverton Jason welcome to the program it's on your mind hey thanks for having me yeah we were, uh, I was watching that last night and, uh, I'm a daughter father I have four daughters and I have one son, um, and my 15-year-old daughter was in there, and my 27-year-old at the time in the kitchen, and they both stopped what they were doing, came over, sat down, and, you know, looked really concerned. And I didn't turn the channel or have them walk away. We were a football family, although my daughters aren't really into it, but the 27-year-old, she's pretty cynical, you know, at that age, and she says, Oh, well, they'll just cart them off and they'll start playing again because it's football and boy, they got to make some money. And my 15 year old saying, they can't do that. There's no way they can do that. Look at them all. Look how they're crying. We're almost crying. We don't even know this guy. And it just, you know, pulls you into a reality that I showed my daughters that by just letting them watch it. I mean, the 15 year old, the 27 year old, she's, you know, of age, but the 15-year-old and seeing how she was concerned and everything, and she's not a football fan or anything, and seeing every player out there kneeling down and every newscaster talking about how they're praying for them, and she's at a critical age, you know, 15, she doesn't know if there's a God or if there's not a God or what's true and what's not. I just try to tell her what my beliefs are. I personally believe in God, and I just told her my beliefs and say you're free to you know, believe what you want, but this is what I believe. And at that point, it was kind of a learning experience also saying, look right there. Look how many people believe in God. And if just believe in anything and having faith in something that 
maybe something above or some other source could help this young man out and just look how everyone's coming together over that and just that alone showing her that kind of gave her just this little positive thought of like wow you know people can get together even if they have different beliefs and stuff and sit there for a common cause because they're you know concerned about someone's life so I just yeah, I bring that up and I appreciate that, Jason and Beaverton. I'll tell you how, you know, Anna, you didn't see this, but the eight-year-old and I ended up like forehead to forehead whispering a little prayer last night on Monday Night Football. My memories at age eight and nine of Monday Night Football were the Dallas Cowboys, Earl Campbell, um, Howard Cosell, Dandy Don, Al Michaels. Those were my memories of Monday Night Football. Down deep... It struck me today, I, I don't want this to be her memory of Monday Night Football. And I know more Monday Night Football will be played, but, you know, we prayed for Hamill last night, and I saw so many people openly praying on social media and other places, you know, amid a horrific and scary incident. I think there were some good things. There were some good signs out there, and I, you know, I left, and I got a couple text messages for friends from friends. I, you know, Mike Barrett, the former Blazer broadcaster, texted me, and he said, "Look at social media." I said, "I know. Look at it. Like people are coming together. They're not, you know, roasting each other like they usually do on social media." Uh, I think people are inherently good, and I think some of that came out last night. Leave it here. More ahead. Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. I think Oregon and Oregon State and Washington probably come out of uh, the bowl season feeling pretty good about themselves. They win their bowl games. Uh, Washington beats Texas in the Alamo Bowl. Oregon State uh, blasted Florida in the Vegas Bowl. And the Ducks used a great final possession in a Bo Nix pass to Chase Cota to beat North Carolina in the Holiday Bowl. Three wins for three teams all up and down the I-5 corridor who all are feeling pretty good about themselves entering next season. I think we're going to spend the offseason probably talking a lot about the Pac-12. they got a television deal on the horizon they have possible expansion coming up there's a lot to be tuned in here too and spring football it won't be that long really before we start talking about that not not kidding and we start to deal with uh, the idea that um, these uh, college teams are going to suit back up again uh, some things that we missed while we're out Anna you uh, I know that you uh, posted on social media about this but Barbara Walters passed away December 30th of last year, at the age of 93, uh, journalist, ABC Evening News, 2020. I remember from 2020. That's where I remember Barbara Walters from, mostly, mm -hmm. just because of my age. She was, you know, from our family to your family, her and Hugh Downs at the end of the night. Good <laughs> night, everybody. Touch, so you be in touch. Yes. Uh, you had, uh, Barbara Walters was an inspiration for you. Oh, come on. Yeah, totally. How but so? I, uh, when I first started reporting, um, I would just collect books from journalists that I respected. And her book on interviewing, I think it's called How to Talk to Practically Anybody About Anything. Mm. 
is so pragmatic and so good and um, it just really kind of taught the art of the interview how important it is to research uh, the person that you're interviewing and not really ask them a ton of questions that you don't already know the answer to but leave some room for surprises it's just so good I always look at like my grandfather lived one grandfather lived to be 94 I had a great-grandmother who lived to be 99 mm -hmm. Mildred, Mildred was her name <laughs> when you're 99 your name automatically becomes Mildred <laughs> she was tough lady she was smart tough funny lady uh, but I think about Barbara Walters 93 and I always go hey that's a good life like that's a, like to me not the same sadness surrounding a death of somebody in the nine in their 90s is a younger person right is that yeah. normal no that's normal or is that, am i weird that's not weird because i always see that and i go <laughs> well they lived a good life that's a good life but her family obviously probably really sad wished she made 100 yeah right yeah. but i remember my grandfather at 94 my italian grandfather he had always made a toast he used to say you know uh he'd raise his glass and he'd say i hope you live to be 100 and then he'd pause and he'd go, and I never die. And then he would say, I, I want to make 100. Like he wanted to be 100 years old. But he had a father and two brothers who all died at the age of 74. Mm -hmm. Okay? And I remember him telling me that. All right? So in 1984, my grandfather turned 74. <laughs> That was a precarious year for my grandfather. He stepped a little more carefully. <laughs> he didn't leave the house in the, in the summer of 1984. Check traffic. We said, hey, you want to go swimming? No, I'm good. Hey, you want to go play golf? No, nah, I'm okay. Want to drive down to the restaurant? Uh, let's wait till New Year's Day. You know. But he, once 75 rolled around, 75, he, he let living, loose. Living big again. Went to Vegas. <laughs> He'd stand up in the middle of a restaurant and sing Ave Maria. Yeah, he was a character. He was a character. He was a. He would embarrass you. Yeah. He would embarrass you, but he would do it in his own way. Because mm -hmm. he knew that he was making you uncomfortable, and you go, No, don't do that. Don't do that. My, in fact, my own dad, so it's his dad, it's my dad's dad, yeah. my dad would not go to a restaurant that had a server involved because... Is that why? Because, to this day, he doesn't. Because his dad would embarrass him with the server. <laughs> I didn't know that. We went to Vegas <laughs> with my grandfather, and he wanted to play craps and do whatever, and I remember looking over at him, he's throwing the dice, he's got a crown royal in his hand, he was, he was having a good time. He had himself a good time. But um, I always look at people in their 90s, and I go, okay, that's that's a good life. Mm -hmm. Were you sad when you heard Barbara Walters passing away, or was it more like, hey, that's a good life, let me give her a nod? Like, did you cry? I don't think you cried. No, I didn't cry, but I was sad. It was just sort of, it's what she represents, and the, you know, incredible strides that she made in journalism as a woman at a time when there just weren't that many female broadcasters around and uh you know people remember her from 2020 and the various talk shows she was part of but i just remember her interviews like i saw a post that monica Lewinsky did yeah. a couple days ago where she talked about how you know barbara walters was the first person that she sat down with after the whole bill clinton thing i remember that and um how she had continued to maintain a relationship with barbara walters um years and years after that like they became friends and went to lunch as recently as a couple of years ago there was some tie to the state of oregon with lewinsky was there not like was she, she went to, to lewis and clark college yeah 
Yeah, yeah. Because, yeah, that was a huge story. I want to say one thing to the American people. I want you to listen to me. I'm going to say this again. I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. I never told anybody to lie, not a single time, never. These allegations are false, and I need to go back to work for the American people. And at the end of that, everyone went, yeah, go back to work. <laughs> like that's, that was the end of that. Um, he sounded so convincing. Huh? He was. Uh, it's hard to uh, imagine, but politics, people want to pretend like the political world was docile before <laughs> like about, you know, eight years ago or six years ago, whatever. Uh, it had some moments, you know, and JFK had some moments. Okay. The Oval Office, as they say, has no corners. So there's nowhere to hide in the Oval Office. But. Uh, really interesting. I want to talk about the year 2023 coming up. Anna, I want you to give one fearless prediction for the year 2023 when it comes to sports. Stephen, Peter, fearless predictions for the year 2023 when it comes to sports. We're going to lay it on the audience. And if you have one and you're out there going, oh, I got one, 503-417-7575. I want to hear your fearless prediction for this year when it comes to sports. Get on the record. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. I want your fearless sports predictions for 2023, 2023. 503-417-7575 is the phone number. Anna, Stephen, Peter, fearless predictions. For the year 2023, I want you guys to get on record. Do it now. Listers, you could do it as well at 503-417-7575. Let's start with Stephen. Stephen, give us a fearless prediction. All right. I'm going to go with the uh, the Portland Trailblazers. They will not make the eight-seed NBA playoffs this year. Not Wait, wait. Not going to make the playoffs? No. They'll be in the play-in uh, and lose. Okay. So they're in the play-in and yep. they lose. Yep. So they do not make the regular field for the playoffs. That is a big fearless prediction. That is correct. You're crawling out on a limb, but you're feeling – what makes you believe that? Uh, I just don't trust this defense at all. And I know GP2 came back uh, last night and looked good on the defensive side, but I don't think it's going to be enough. I, I think it's the same old, same old thing where the Blazers got to outscore everyone to win. So I, I just – I can't buy it yet. Anna, fearless prediction for 2023. I'm going to stay with the NBA, and maybe this is a little more hopeful than a prediction, but I really do think the NBA will expand, mm. and so maybe Seattle will get a no, team No, you have back. to be fearless. you got to, you know, so okay, none fine. of this maybe, okay. I think they might. You have to <laughs> declare this is what's happening. The NBA uh, will have an expansion, and that will mean that people in Seattle will have a team again since they've gone so long without the Sonics. So the Sonics are coming back via expansion. And the I-5 rivalry will be resurrected. I can hear the cheers from our listeners who are Seattle fans. And I also think some Blazer fans would enjoy that. Get that rivalry back going. Exactly. It's not a it's not a bad one. But there's no this isn't the hey, we kinda sorta think so truth. Okay. Fearless. This is the bald faced truth. 
You, you don't sit on the fence. Noted. There's no fence here. Even if you don't Peter, believe it, just say it confidently. You, yeah, you just got to be like an official selling a call <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> on the court. Peter Sampson, what do you got? Major League Baseball, due to the uh, rule changes, pitch clock, banning the shift, and the uh, bigger bases leading to more stolen bases, we'll see a second straight year of increased regular season ratings and mm. a first increase in World Series ratings in a good amount of years. I think people can get a lot more down with a two-and-a-half-hour game than a four-hour game. Young people getting excited about baseball. That is a bold prediction. Mm-hmm. Peter Sampson bringing the heat on that one. I'm, I'm not kidding. Like, because the young people, you go, baseball? Eh. Like, I don't have a baseball buddy in this house. I got a football buddy. Yeah. You know? The eight-year-old's not watching baseball with me. You got to mold them. That's how you do it. <laughs> Let's go to Kevin, who's in Sandy. I want your fearless predictions, 503-417-7575. Kevin, fearless prediction, go. Okay, well, this goes back a little ways because I called you and I predicted that Tiger Woods would win three more majors, but this was pre-car accident. I never got to call you back. He's got one. He needs two more. I predict that in 2023, Tiger Woods wins the Masters. Boom, mic drop. There it is. Wow. Going with the Masters win for Tiger Woods. And I like how Kevin and Sandy is so busy that he can't call me back. (laughs) <laughs> with another prediction after his original prediction. I get it. That's like one of these people going, hey, can you get coffee? And they go, oh, I'm so busy. Kevin and Sandy, so busy. <laughs> I love the call. Appreciate that. He says Tiger Woods wins a major. That's bold. He's predicting the Masters. Heck no of a doubt. comeback story. Okay. I got to, I got to, I'm going to give predictions in every sport. Wow. I'm going to say that your your Super Bowl is going to be a repeat of the Kansas City Chiefs against the San Francisco 49ers. That's your Super Bowl. Okay. 49ers will lose the Super Bowl to Kansas City again. Okay? That's what I see happening. Fearless prediction. It wasn't so long ago the 49ers were like 14 to 1, 10 to 1. Come on, they don't have a quarterback, but they will get there. Brock Purdy gets the Niners to the Super Bowl, but that's it. That's my first prediction. In the NBA, guys, I think it's going to be the Milwaukee Bucks. Am I crazy? Talk me out of it. No, not crazy at all. I love it. Milwaukee Bucks win the NBA championship. Big parade in Milwaukee. They drink, uh, you know, Miller Lights or whatever they drink in Milwaukee during the parade. (laughs) Nobody's throwing Skittles. Uh, Major League Baseball, I think it's the Yankees' turn to finally break through. They've spent the money. Perennial disappointment. Disappointment this last season and the postseason. I think the Yankees break through and get a World Series championship come, what, November now? That's when we're playing the World Series. Those are my predictions. Now, which prediction, other than your own, you cannot vote for your own, is most likely to come true? Who are we voting for here, collectively? Peter said that it would be, Peter, what were yours again? Uh, Ratings would increase in Major League Baseball for a second year, and then the World Series ratings would jump. I got so locked into my baseball pick, I forgot about Peter saying more people are going to watch it. People saying ratings are going to jump. People are going to be more into baseball. Steven, your prediction again? Uh, Trailblazers missing out on the playoffs. He's saying the Blazers are going to flop. I mean, it's not that big. Don't at me, guys. Go after Steven. (laughs) Bring Uh, it. it. 
Anna's saying, Anna, recap your prediction. Uh, I think there's going to be an expansion in the NBA, which nets Seattle a team. Which of, those, which of these predictions, you heard mine, are most likely to come true, guys? Vote for someone other than yourself. Uh, I'm going to say Anna's with the caveat that it, I, like it's going to happen. It's going to be Seattle along with Vegas. I don't know that it's going to happen in 2023, though. That's the only question. Mm. I'm going to go with uh, John's prediction of the Bucks winning the NBA Finals. That's a good one. Okay. I agree with you on the Yankees, although I don't want to. I actually think Peter's prediction of ratings being up, I think baseball figured something out in this last postseason. It was more interesting. It was fun. Baseball, you know, became fun, and if the games are faster, I think it will go faster. So everyone you had can... good predictions except for mine. Yeah, everybody, <laughs> good job. Hater. I'm not, I just don't, I don't want to root for the Blazers not making the playoffs. I would agree with you. Stephen, but it's too depressing to, to agree with you. <laughs> five, we'll lift this show up with the five at five next. B F F T. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights. Here's John Canzano with the bald faced truth. Every day on the show, every time we do the show, we do something called the Five at Five. It's the five biggest, baddest stories going on. Some of it relevant and important, and other parts of it just uh, entertaining. So we'll do that today. We'll start the happy hour, the five o'clock hour, with the Five, 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 at Five, Five, Five. The Five at Five. Brought to you by Mercedes-Benz of Wilsonville. See more than 4,000 vehicles at Swickert.com. Well, Damar Hamlin remains in critical condition after going into cardiac arrest on the field in Cincinnati on Monday night. His family today thanked the public for their support and continued prayers. They say they feel blessed to be part of the Bills organization and have their support. They acknowledge the first responders and healthcare professionals who have provided care for Damar. They said, quote, please keep Damar in your prayers, end quote. They'll release updates as soon as they have them. Uh, he spent Monday night in the ICU at the University of Cincinnati Medical Center. He remains there today. Several teams around the NFL canceled their media availability today out of respect for Hamlin. Patriots did not talk. The Eagles, the Colts, the Chiefs, the Jaguars, uh, you know, the Steelers held their availability. And Mike Tomlin said... It's a personal thing for me, being a Pittsburgher and that young man being a Pittsburgher. Said he's known him since he was 12. Mike Tomlin and the rest of the NFL thinking a lot about Hamlin, who at the age of 24 had his heartbeat restored on the field after he suffered cardiac arrest in the game against the Bengals. CPR was administered. He was placed in an ambulance. He was taken off the field 16 minutes after he collapsed. Hamlin was a six-round draft pick of the uh, 2021 NFL Draft. The Bills took him with the number 212 overall pick. He's been starting this season. In place of the injured safety, Micah Hyde, who was on the IR after suffering a neck injury in week two. We'll give you more information on Hamlin as it becomes available. And a number two in the five at five. UFC President Dana White issuing a public apology for a physical alteration between himself and his wife. who was captured on video during their New Year's Eve celebration in Cabo. 
The video shows him and his wife Anne in a VIP area of a nightclub. He can be seen in the video saying something to the wife, at which point she slaps him in the face. He then slaps her back before the two are quickly separated. He's apologizing, saying there's no excuses for what happened. He says, you've heard me say over the years, there is never, ever an excuse for a guy to put his hands on a woman. And now here I am on TMZ talking about it. Nightclub altercation between Dana White and his wife. They get physical uh, with this. Does this does this cause uh, Dana White to have to step down? Uh, head of the UFC, what what happens here? Because if this were Roger Goodell in the NFL, he's done. He's done as a commissioner. Does UFC play by different rules in the public eye? Mm, We're going to find out. Yeah, we'll find out. I think it does. I, I mean, I think that the fact that she's also issuing a statement saying this is out of character for him. They're both blaming alcohol and things getting out of control. I think they were so quick to come forward and mutually issue statements and point to the fact that they've got three kids and they've been married for so long. I don't know. I don't know that. I don't know. I don't okay. know that it's the end. For so him. I'm watching the video now. She slaps him. Yeah. He slaps her back. He slaps her a second time. Yeah. And then he proceeds to push her to the floor. Yeah. This is bad. It's not good. No. It's bad not moment. Good there and you know it i don't know i don't want to make a judgment but it strikes me that that would not be the first time that there's been physical violence in that relationship <sighs> come on who knows you don't that, you're not slapping that same, each other I like had that that same thought if, but uh, we don't know raise your hand if you think this is the first time especially in public too to feel comfortable doing that in public i don't know yeah yeah it bothers me no excuse for his actions. He's in Cabo. They've been married almost 30 years. They've known each other since they were 12. And he said, we've obviously been through some blank together. We've got three kids. This is a horrible situation. He's embarrassed. Uh, alcohol involved, but that's not an excuse. Um, his wife came out in her statement. She said nothing like this has ever happened before. They're both saying that, yes. Okay. Number three in our five at five, PED test for Donovan Mitchell. Donovan Mitchell scored 71 points, okay? And then a day later, the Cleveland Cavalier, Cavaliers were issued tests for PEDs. That happened today. So players are typically subject to four random t PED tests during the season and two in the offseason. Just a coincidence, Donovan Mitchell tweeting, and just like that, we're drug tested this morning. 145-134, uh, overtime victory over the Bulls on Monday night. Mitchell had 71, most points by an NBA player since Kobe Bryant had 81 in the 2006 season. He was 22 of 34 from the field, 7 of 15 from three, scored 13 in the overtime, Cavs erased a 21-point deficit and beat the Bulls. By the way, he also had 11 assists. By far the most by a player in a 70-point game in NBA history. I don't know. I, I Look, I kind of welcome the PED test. I take that as a compliment if I'm Donovan Mitchell. I'm so good. I was so good on Monday night <laughs> that the NBA gave me a drug test on Tuesday. 
You know what I mean? Put it on a t-shirt. I want somebody to accuse me. Hey, you know what? Kanzano was so good in that pickup game, he must be on PEDs. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Take it as a compliment. Let the haters hate. By the way, Robin Lopez pointing out on social media, Robin Lopez had one point in the game, that he and Donovan Mitchell combined for 72. Anna, number <laughs> four in our five at five. That's a good spin. Uh, the NCAA Transformation Committee, doesn't that sound fun? Uh-oh. Recommends expanding March Madness. Um, so this is the committee that is charged with reshaping archaic NCAA policies. They've produced a 40-page final report just released today. And among their recommendations is incorporating more teams into the NCAA postseason championships that it should consider expanding the brackets to accommodate access for 25% of participating teams in the sport. With 68 teams currently, that would expand by about 20 teams. Okay, this is about money. And for those of you who heard Greg Sankey, who gave an interview with me, I think it was, I want to say summertime. Greg Sankey, the SEC commissioner, came on late summer. We talked about the uh, the idea of expanding the play or the uh, NCAA tournament at that point, and Sankey talked about you know basically the he looked at baseball and he said look look at look at the baseball national championship and the college world series and look at the teams that historically win that tournament, and they were he was pointing out that. You know, in May of last year, Ole Miss beat Oklahoma and won the College World Series. Ole Miss was the last team allowed into the bracket. They ended up winning it. So Sankey, he is all about the SEC, obviously. He's the commissioner of the SEC, but he's the head of this committee. He signaled to us in the late summer that this was coming down the pipeline because he said, how do we know that you know, the team that was the last team left out of the NCAA tournament wasn't going to win the NCAA tournament. How do we know the second-to-last team wasn't going to win the NCAA tournament? And and really what he's getting at is an SEC team wins the College World Series. But the problem that, that Sankey and some others were having with the NCAA tournament is that the automatic bids were going to, like, the Big Sky champion, Conference USA champion gets an automatic bid. All these small conferences around the country get automatic bids. They opposed that. They wanted to create minimum standards because they want those automatic qualifying bids that go to small conferences to go to their members. They don't want Portland State in the tournament. They want Ole Miss, Mississippi State, Tennessee in the tournament. And so I think this is a compromise. They're going to go to, what, 90 teams? That's too many. Steven, Peter, 90 teams. You good with that? No, way way too many. Uh, 68 is fine. I'm fine with the first four. But 64 is perfect. 90 is way too many. Agreed. I'll be really curious to see if we get anybody other than, like, a seven seed that can get to the tournament. Like, I, I just don't think we're going to see, you know, what are we looking at? 2019 seed Portland State? You know, 20 seed. Like, I just think we're still going to see, we're still going to see top seven seed teams advance 
in most cases, to the Final Four. Finally, our fifth thing in our five at five. Let's talk about the Panthers and and Jim Harbaugh. Apparently, uh, David Tepper, the Panthers owner, had a conversation with Michigan coach Jim Harbaugh about the opening that Carolina is going to have once the season ends. Conversation was not characterized as an interview. Interviews cannot begin until Carolina finishes the season. Steve Wilkes is the interim coach. They play their last game on Sunday against the Saints. Uh, according to league sources, Wilkes is a strong candidate for the for the full-time job. wonder how he feels about this. But apparently Tepper and Harbaugh are having conversations. Um, this was first reported by the Panthers' broadcast partner. And Jim Harbaugh is said to have sincere interest in this job. I don't – look, I get the temptation – from college coaches who want to go and, uh, you know, test the waters. Uh, but Jim Harbaugh has a five-year contract that runs through 2026. That contract is, you know, makes him, outside of Nick Saban, the highest-paid coach in college athletics, he's a $10 million-a-year guy. And he is, you know, you know this season he's only making – like seven point six million, but his base contract, you know, we're talking about a guy who's getting paid really well, who has some inherent advantages at Michigan, who should be really happy to be where he is, despite the fact that he is now oh for whatever in playoff games. And, you know, he got a bunch of bonuses this year, pushed his total earnings to about ten million dollars. So he got you know, he got uh, he would have got a million dollar bonus for winning the national title. Instead, you know, he gets uh, you know a million dollars for winning the Big Ten championship, and he was faced at getting a uh, five hundred thousand dollar bonus for playing in that playoff game. So one point five million dollars for being in the postseason for Jim Harbaugh and winning the Big Ten championship. But I I just I think it would be a mistake for him to go to the NFL. I think he should stay right where he is and win a whole bunch of games and prove to people that he can win a national championship at Michigan. Because I think the question right now is about, you know, if there is any question that came out of the playoff Final Four, I think Georgia's going to beat TCU in the title game. I think TCU uh, under Sonny Dykes having a great season. I think Ohio State and Ryan Day have a lot to be proud of getting to the playoff despite losing, you know, to Michigan in the regular season. So I think the questions for me were all about Harbaugh. Like, how does he finally break through? How does he fix this? Because uh, I was really surprised by the fact that TCU jumped all over Michigan the way they did in that game. We'll talk about the playoff coming up. All of that still ahead. Leave it here. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. TCU upset Michigan in one semifinal. Georgia came from behind to beat uh, Ohio State uh, and then held on for dear life at the end of their game. Um, I was surprised by both of those outcomes. I thought Georgia would run away with their semifinal, and I still think Georgia's the best team by far. Um, and they did not run away with it. They really were in a dogfight with Ohio State. 
A little bit surprised by that. I also thought Michigan would take care of TCU, and they did not. Granted, when I watched the game, I was far more impressed with some of TCU's players, uh, playmakers on both sides of the ball, particularly uh, the skill position receivers, running backs at TCU. Great depth. Just outstanding playmakers for TCU. I think they'll score a little on Georgia, but I think Georgia's going to push them around. And I think ultimately Georgia's the better team, more experienced team. And I frankly have to say this. It was New Year's Eve. Ohio State is trying to knock out Georgia. And I kept thinking to myself as I was watching the fourth quarter of that game, this is the same Ohio State team that just, what, year and a half ago struggled at home against Oregon. Do these guys know how to win this kind of game? And I think Ohio State ran into a Georgia team that had been in those situations, that had played in playoff games, that had played in national championship games, that had played in multiple SEC championship games, knew how to win, knew how to deal with the pressure, and I think Ohio State felt it a little bit down the stretch. Now, they make that kick at the end of regulation. Maybe it's all different. But they didn't make the kick, and Georgia's going to the national championship game. I have Georgia over TCU Guys, what do you think is going to happen, and were there surprises for you in either one of those semifinals? Yeah, I was shocked in both uh, both outcomes. I thought Georgia was going to take control of Ohio State and cover that game, and that was, you know, Ohio State jumped on them early, and I did express this a little bit last week, John, in that, that Georgia defense has been susceptible to, you know, a strong passing game, and C.J. Stroud, Marvin Harrison Jr. looked the part in that one, but Georgia pulled it out, and I thought TCU had no chance. I thought they had no chance to beat Michigan. And they beat them outright. They beat them, you know, pretty handily. Uh, you know, Michigan made some mistakes, but overall, it just seemed like TCU was the better team in that one. That one's really shocking to me. But I, I can't see how TCU goes in and beats Georgia in this game. It seems like it's going to be a back-to-back with Georgia. I just don't know how TCU can, you know, withstand this the talent and the size that Georgia has. Um, but yeah, I was shocked on both games. Like I was wrong on both those sides. Kind of the most shocking thing to me, it wasn't just that TCU got a lead because you knew Michigan was going to knock on the door, but every time Michigan would come down, make a play and score the ball, TCU just responded immediately. They would come right down and match touchdown for touchdown. That, I mean, I wasn't necessarily shocked that Ohio State, I mean, it it was a little more than hanging around. I mean, they were up 21-7. It was pretty surprising that Georgia came back, pretty surprising that Ohio State led. But the way that TCU answered time after time in the second half really kind of caught me off guard. I really love uh, the playmakers that Sonny Dykes has. And look, I had a lot of Cal fans in my timeline wondering how Sonny Dykes is having such great success at TCU. He was fired by Cal. Uh, well, the truth is, look at the look at the operation that is Cal. Like, you know, Cal's got a real problem in both football and in men's basketball. I think some of it is leadership in the athletic department. And I do think that they need a coaching change in men's basketball. That is a terrible team. Uh, but I also think, like, Cal's got to do some soul-searching. So does Stanford. But Sonny Dykes went 19-30 and 30 at Cal in his time there. Everywhere else that Sonny Dykes has coached, he's 65-34. and 34. So he's winning, like, 65% of his games except at Cal, where he's a loser. So I think if you're Cal, you got to look at that and you got to go, okay, what are – what are, what's the what's the data telling us here? The data is telling us that this job is not as good as everywhere else that Sonny Dykes has coached, including TCU. So I think Cal needs to look at the resources that they are allocating to their football program. 
They need to look at, you know, are they paying assistant coaches? Are they are they uh, are they recruiting in a way that is conducive to their to their roster? Um, are they participating in the transfer portal at least in a way that is impactful? Because I I think we'll all immediately go to the transfer portal and we'll go, hey, Stanford and Cal just not drawing in on the portal like some other places because of the academic requirements. But while Sonny Dykes is preparing TCU to play Georgia for the national championship, Cal's got to be asking themselves, hey, if Sonny Dykes couldn't win here and he's about to play for a national championship, what is it that we're missing? Because I think Cal really could use a reset, and they're not in as bad a situation as Stanford is. Okay, they're not, um, because I think Stanford's got even more academic limitations. Like Cal could take some community college JC transfers and and get it done, but I just think Cal needs to do some soul searching here. Um, here is Sonny Dykes talking about the matchup, how TCU can beat Georgia. Well, it's going to have to take a great team effort, really across uh, offense, defense, and really on special teams as well. You know, we're going to have to play physical, which we did against Michigan. We're going to have to even play more physical more physical against Georgia. It's going to be important. Georgia's got a little bit more team speed probably than Michigan did. We're going to have to be able to re- respond to that. You know, the big thing for us, obviously, is is not turn the ball over. We had three turnovers in the game uh, against Michigan. Can't do that against Georgia. And then we can't give up as many explosive plays as we did defensively. So, Limit, limit Georgia's explosive plays, take care of the ball on offense, go out, play tough physical football, and, and not get too high, not get too low. Just keep, uh, keep our foot on the accelerator and play hard for 60 minutes. And if we do those things, we'll certainly like the outcome of the game. Look, I, I disagree a little bit with Sonny Dykes, and I get why he would say what he's saying, because you don't want to tell your team, hey, we have to have a superhuman effort here, and then you get a bunch of guys that are running around on the field trying to do too much, making mistakes. But I do think that TCU needs – a better than uh, you know better than expected performance to win this game. I think they have to create turnovers. I think uh, a game in which TCU wins, I think Georgia would have to have at least two turnovers in that game. I think TCU would have to have an exceptional quarterback performance, which is certainly possible. They had a Heisman finalist at quarterback, and I think they've got to play a uh, almost perfect game to to be in there against Georgia. I think Georgia's too good, too physical, too talented. And I think Georgia a little bit, like, you know, I don't want to say the game didn't mean anything to Georgia because it was evident. Stetson Bennett's tears, the Georgia players, the way they celebrated after the game, like, they knew they were flirting with the possibility that they were going to blow this and everybody was going to look back at them as a huge disappointment. You know, defending national champions, undefeated, like, the tears told me something about Georgia. But I do think there's something to TCU being in this this position against Michigan, rising to meet the moment, playing like it's us, them against the world. And, you know, there was just a lot of alacrity. There was a lot of urgency to the way TCU played. Georgia didn't have that against Ohio State. I kind of felt like Georgia was going through the motions a little bit and didn't play very well early. Stetson Bennett had an interception and then – you know, I think it was, uh, you know, at the point where it was 21-7, Ohio State is when I think Georgia kind of woke up. And then Stetson Bennett and, you know, Georgia started to go, okay, you know, like, you know, we're about to get blown out of this game. And so I would expect that Georgia, though, will show up with some urgency given that it's a national championship game. I don't know. Maybe they won so much 
that they just weren't sharp in, in this game against Ohio State. And let's give Ohio State some credit because I think Ohio State's got a great quarterback. I think they had a good plan. And I think they came in, they came in looking to knock Georgia out. And I was really surprised at the way that Ohio State moved the ball on Georgia and how they didn't appear to be intimidated at all by Georgia. I think Oregon, who I saw in that same Mercedes-Benz Stadium in the opening game, Oregon went into that game, and it was rattled at kickoff. And you could tell, even Bo Nix, when he went back to pass, he was kind of looking like a Tecmo Bowl quarterback, kind of just dropping back, dropping back, throwing the ball away. Like, there was a fear factor that, that Oregon had in that game that I think they utilized throughout the rest of the season. They drew upon. But um, I think uh, I think Georgia may encounter a TCU team that's in over its head, to, even though I think everyone's going to be rooting for TCU. Yeah, to me, John, it it seemed like Ohio State was the second-best team in the tournament, like of the, of the four teams, and maybe that's just you know recency mm-hmm. bias that it looked so good against Georgia. But TCU, like – they caused three turnovers in Michigan. They got the uh, touchdown called back by Michigan, and then they fumbled the very next play. Michigan's also got a you know turnover on downs inside the red zone, inside the five-yard line. Like I thought a lot of fortunate things happened for TCU to get that win, and I, I, I'm right with you. I think they might be overwhelmed a little bit against this Georgia team, who even Sonny Dyke said, like, this team's going to be faster than Michigan was. So I, I think you're right on with that one. I, I just look for a big performance from Georgia. Mike's in Oregon. Mike, welcome to the conversation. What's on your mind? John, you guys are nailing it. I'm looking at the 247, 24-7 sports composite roster ratings just based on what happened in the portal, the existing rosters, and the number of five stars. So here we go. Alabama, Georgia are 1 and 1A. I knew Ohio State was going to box if they felt like it because they have the third best roster in the country, and I think that was clear. Uh, at the playoff game for disappointed duck fans like myself who you guys were grading landing at a b b plus era the other day i think that's true but the ducks have the seventh rated roster in this country between six texas and eight lsu and tcu oh and michigan by the way is 13 which I think you saw they are not as fast as Georgia, not even close, and especially on defense. They look lost with TCU's skill. But TCU is number 32, and how did they do it? With a bunch of transfer portal additions. But this is why the expansion of the playoff is so key, because they underscored the fact that perhaps some of the non-Big Ten SEC schools can compete because of the portal, and it's going to be a beautiful thing. I'll let you guys discuss and listen. Have a great yeah, day, look, guys. It, it's not all about five stars, but the five stars sure make the the duty of coaching a little easier. Uh, I do feel good about picking Alabama to, to boat race Kansas State in, uh, in their bowl game, but um, I think it's going to be really interesting to, to kind of watch what happens here as USC and UCLA go to the Big Ten Conference. Oregon had this terrific recruiting class. Jonathan Smith at Oregon State looks to be upgrading at multiple positions. Uh, you know, Tristan Jabia, you know, he jumps in the transfer portal today. He's going to transfer. I, I took that move as kind of a sign that, you know, things are changed at Oregon State. No longer is it about, like, hey, the, uh, the quarterback who got hurt a couple of years ago hanging around and taking some snaps late in the bowl game. Next season for Oregon State and Jonathan Smith, it is a 
there's a line of delineation that has occurred here after this Vegas Bowl and the the arrival of you know a, a quarterback that that uh, that obviously uh, is going to upgrade what the expectations are for for uh, Oregon State. Uh, I think there's it's going to be really interesting to kind of see what happens next. Stay tuned. Leave it here. You got the BFT. Back to the bald faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Starting to tune myself into uh, college basketball now that the bowl season is mostly in the books. Uh, in uh, the Pac 12 conference, obviously, a lot of people talk about Arizona. And they talk about UCLA as conference play, um, you know, is is underway. But um, I also am looking at, you know, Utah has played very well, 4-0 in conference play. And uh, USC and Arizona State are both very good. And then I can't discount Oregon and Dana Altman, even though Oregon and Dana Altman have not looked good. They're 8-6 and six this season. Not exactly uh, a traditional Oregon team. It looks like more of the frustration from last season has carried over into this season for Dana Altman. But um, I'm really excited to see a couple of the big matchups. Like, I really just want to see if Utah is for real as a possible tournament team for the Pac-12 conference. And then Arizona is hosting UCLA coming up on the 21st of January. Uh, I'm toying with going to that game, guys, and going down and covering that game and writing about it. It's on a Saturday because I think that game – is the game when it comes to the early part of the season for the Pac-12 conference. But the rest of this conference just, you know, Bobby Hurley and Arizona State, they've played well, but, you know, they, they lost to their rivals. Uh, they lost to Arizona. And I, uh, I'm i kind of waiting to see what happens with Arizona State. I think they could be a dangerous team if they're playing well to, at the end of the year. But outside of that, it's UCLA. It's Arizona, and it's Utah kind of at this point of the season. Is this just going to be a two-team league with two ranked teams in the top ten and then everybody else? Yeah, I think you're right on that. Uh, and, I mean, if you look at just, like, final four contenders, it's definitely only UCLA and Arizona after that. Nobody else really, I think, would be considered in that. Arizona, uh, number one in Ken Palm, the adjusted offense. Like, their offense is unbelievable. Tommy Lloyd, he's got that thing rolling. And yeah, Utah. You know, Utah's been a really good team. Um, Craig Smith came over from Utah State as their former coach, and now he's coaching there, Salt Lake City. You know, he's done a really good job there. But you know, you talked about Oregon, Dana Altman. I feel like Dana Altman is a really good coach, and they've been not healthy all season long. At some point, I think they're going to get it together. They're going to get fully healthy and start pulling some games together. But it just it, it does have those vibes of last season where it just never came uh, together. So there is always that threat of that happening. But I think Oregon will be. Uh, not at the top of the Pac-12, but maybe, you know, right in the middle to the upper half and uh, not necessarily competing for the title, but competing for a, an at-large bid in the NCAA tournament. I think the Pac-12 tournament in Vegas will be a blast because, you know, Bobby Hurley and Arizona State will be interesting. Utah will be fun. Um, there's You know, you never count Dana Altman out in that kind of tournament, but I think uh, it feels like it's a UCLA-Arizona uh, UCLA conversation uh, all the way with maybe Utah or USC playing a role in there. But, uh, I mean, I think there's some programs in the conference, Stanford and Cal, 
have to answer some questions. Washington has been a little better, but not great. It's lost by like 25 to UCLA the other night. Um, and um, I think Oregon State, you know, although they've been better, they're seven and seven overall this season. They got a win in conference play. Uh, I think Oregon State, people are still looking at Oregon State going, what happened to the Elite Eight? What happened to the momentum that was supposed to come out of the Elite Eight? It's disappointing to see, you know, the momentum of the Elite Eight turn into uh, last season, which was an absolute disaster, and then this season's better, team's more likable, playing hard, got some younger players that you like better, but, you know, I'm looking at the in two of the next three games, Oregon State plays at Utah, really tough game, then hosts Arizona on January 12th, and I think in their next four, you know, their best chance is probably to win one of the next four. They play Colorado at Colorado, but I think it's going to be a tough road again for Wayne Tinkle in Oregon State, and this all coming just one and a half seasons after Wayne Tinkle took that program to the Elite Eight. They were supposed to use it to recruit and get better. They didn't. They, you know, the pandemic may have played a role in that. They couldn't rec- get out and recruit in person. They, you know, Wayne Tinkle told me last year he made some mistakes in recruiting. Didn't, you know, made some mistakes on guys. And I guess that happens, but I'm disappointed with where Oregon and Oregon State are at right now. Because right now it feels like best-case scenario, they're middle of the pack. And worst-case scenario, maybe both of them uh, are outside of the top six. You know, I think Oregon's just clinging right now to the sixth-place spot in the standings. And I think clearly UCLA, Utah, USC, Arizona, Arizona State are better. So they better hope that, you know, they start to play uh, better basketball and get healthy and, and play good basketball down the stretch. Yeah, and with, you know, talking about Oregon State, if you watch the Pac-12, you, you pay attention to any anything in the basketball, you know that Rocky Mountain road trip, Utah-Colorado, is a brutal stretch where it's tough to get at least one of those games. And I, I think Oregon State's going to have trouble even winning one of those. And I go back to this for Oregon State. Back on December 15th, they hosted Seattle, the Red Hawks of the Western Athletic Conference, the WAC. That, you know, that's a team, that is an okay team in the WAC, but... Seattle was favored in that game, and I think that shows how far the Oregon State program has fallen. Now, you can say that Oregon State is one of the youngest teams in the nation, which they are, and that is a true fact, but the talent just isn't necessarily the Pac-12 level if you watch those, that team. So, yeah, I'm with you. Like, I thought there was going to be some momentum after the Elite Eight run with Oregon State. just hasn't been there for the Beavs, um, and it's starting to feel like you know, back when they made that run, there was a little bit of apathy, I thought, in the program. Now I think that apathy is back after that initial boost where people just aren't caring as much. So, you know, you want to see Wayne Tinkle get that uh, thing turned around. I just I don't see necessarily how it's going to happen. Like a quick turnaround It's going to be tough for them. Yeah, and I think um, it'll be interesting. I mean, the tournament's always fun. Vegas, you know, anything can happen. Anybody can beat anybody. But right now, um, this team, this conference, which historically, I think in recent history, has struggled – to uh, A, place teams in the tournament, and B, win games in the tournament, has two really good teams, and then everybody else. Utah's a bit of a surprise. I'm not sure on them. I need to see more. But Utah looks like they could be the number three team in this conference based on what we've seen. All right, leave it here. you got the BFT. Some parting thoughts coming up. I want you to leave it here. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game.
For those of you listening on 750 The Game, Peter Sampson and The Pulse coming up top of the hour. Peter, what do you got on the show? Yeah, we got to talk about uh, Gary Payton, the second's debut last night. Limited minutes, but he looked good. Uh, bad news for the Pelicans. And Donovan Mitchell, man, he had a huge game last night, but should he have been allowed to get 70? It looks like maybe the officials helped him out a little bit there. The, yeah, that post-game report that people pay attention to, uh, you know, should he have been called for, was it a travel? Did he travel? Uh, lane he violation. It was oh, a lane, lane violation. Right. And it was a technicality. It, you know, Stephen said earlier that his bold prediction for the year was um, that that you know the Blazers would not make the playoffs. Um, is it possible that Gary Payton the seconds, if he stays healthy, that his presence makes Stephen look bad? It's possible. Uh, I don't think it was a crazy prediction. I disagree with it, but I think it was reasonable. Uh, I mean, look, they need that kind of defender, uh, you know, someone who's uh, an elite on-ball defender and somehow even better in space. But look, there's still four other guys on the court. Health is an issue. I mean, you know, when you're playing alongside defenders like uh, Damian Lillard and Fernie Simons, you're going to have to pick up a lot of slack. Now, he's the guy to do that, but, uh, you know, they're still missing a few guys off the bench. You know, Justice Winslow, Nas Little need to come back. Chauncey Billups needs to find lineups that uh, give everyone enough minutes and really sort of maximize uh, Peyton's uh, capabilities. Yeah, John, I want to ask you a question about this because I was uh, talking to some Blazer fans about this last night. I feel like, and I like Gary Payton the second, I feel like we're overblowing his return a little bit. This is a guy that averaged mm-hmm. seven points a game last season, was going to be out of the NBA had he not made the Warriors. He was going to go into coaching I love what he brings on the defensive side, but it's all we're almost making it out like GP2 is going to be the savior for this team and is going to elevate it. I think we're getting a little too far in front of uh, you know in front of our skis here. Am I wrong on this? I think that um, it's human nature to overreact both ways. I think people underreact intentionally, overreact intentionally. I think very rarely does the the do we have an appropriate amount of expectations. I think it's why people get disappointed. It's really rooted in. Uh, the expectation. So I think so much talk about Gary Payton the second and what he'll be as a player. Um, uh, I think, I think there was so much buildup and so much, where is he? How much is he going to, but I actually think he helps them a lot. And the other point that you're not considering Steven is will other teams take nights off against the Blazers and will they steal some wins? Cause I think in the last couple of years they stole wins early in the season. Will they get some late? I don't know. I think it it you know the NBA is so human nature. It's unpredictable. I I would I would agree with you, Stephen, that too much is being made of Gary Payton the second being on, on this team and contributing. But I also think he helped the Warriors quite a bit, and I think he'll help the Blazers enough. I think they'll make the playoffs, but I don't expect them to win games or win a series. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't think that you're wrong. You're not wrong for thinking that. I just, you know, just talking to Blazer fans, it seems like we're getting a little too hyped over Gary Payton the second. Again, yeah. really good player. Now, he does help a lot. Like, the weaknesses of the Blazers is on the defensive side, is on the man-to-man ball, you know, point-of-attack defender, and that's what he does really well. You even saw it last night in, you know, the 13 minutes he played. He had a couple steals. He made a couple nice passes. You know, the, the Blazers ran their offense through him a couple times in the first half. He had a nice alley-oop pass to Shane and Sharp. I do like what he brings. I just feel like we're putting a lot of pressure on this guy yeah. who, uh, you know, 
averages seven points a game last season in the best offense in the NBA in the Warriors, and now he's coming to Portland where he's going to be expected to do a little more. I think you're what you're really talking about is what Blazer fans do. Like, don't Blazer fans overvalue their own players like me? I, I think every fan base does it, but the Blazer fans do it a little more. Oh, I've done, I've done that. I'm <laughs> fully guilty. I mean, I, back in the day, Armand Johnson, I thought he was going to be awesome. We did a full Greatest. segment of that. We Just did. those guys. Yeah. Who are those guys? Quintel Woods is so good. Yeah. Man, if he just got his moment. How about Sergio? I'm still you know, and Rudy. Rudy still and Sergio. I don't understand how Martel Webster wasn't really good in the NBA. I still can't understand it. It the Blazer Blazer fans do that, and that's why when Blazer fans go to make a trade proposal, they can't do it because <laughs> they they value their players. They're like the Bears fans sitting around on Saturday Night Live. CG McCollum, he's an All Star. He's a perennial All Star. We can't give that guy up. Um, really good player, really nice player, but on a good team. You know, C.J. McCollum's not getting the shots and the numbers that he got with the Blazers. So I just think the Blazer fans do that, and I find it charming, but I also think it stands in the way of reason. And I think what you're talking about is, you know, Gary Payton II, you know, on a scale of 1 to 10, how big is it that he's healthy and in the lineup? Uh, Blazer fans probably put it at an 8 or a (laughs) 9. You know, it's like a a 4.5. You know, he's going to help them. They're better off with him healthy in the lineup. But is he carrying him to the sixth seed? No. Yeah, there's no arguments that he's not like he's helping the team for sure. I can never argue that, and I never would. But there's so many other glaring needs that the Blazers need, uh, especially just depth wise with talent wise with this team. That one guy in Gary Payton's egg is just not going to make that big of a difference. And I think a lot of it, you know, a lot of the NBA season and pro sports in general now nowadays comes down to who stays healthy, and. And I just wonder about the miles over the years that the Blazers put on Damian Lillard. I think it, it might be a blessing, turn out to be a blessing in a weird way that he had kind of a low-impact year a year ago as he had the surgery and then he recovered. And then, you know, it, it, he didn't have that high-mile season that we saw he and CJ having put on them. So, I don't know. I, I have just been, over the years, surprised at, you know, how many games those guys did play. And how they didn't break down because I kept waiting for it, going, man, they're playing. They're not only playing a bunch of games; they're playing a bunch of minutes in those games. And I think that one, there was one year where like C.J. McCollum played more minutes than anybody and ran more miles than anybody during games. And I was like, you know, that's not going to hold up. And for the most part, they did. Um, who do you worry about on the injury front when it comes to the Blazers? Like, let's throw Lillard out because, of course, if they lose him, that's. But who can they not afford to lose? It's it's Yusuf Nurkic, yeah. and uh, for me, like I, he's so polarizing because he does things really well, but he doesn't finish well around the hoop. You know, he throws up those little flip shots that get really annoying. But defensively, and watch this every game when he goes out and Drew Eubanks comes in, and I like Drew Eubanks, he's fine, he's an okay player. But the defense falls off when Nurk goes out of the game. I if if they lose Nurk for any extended period of time, I think the Blazer defense. Is going to get worse, which is going to be a problem because it's already you know towards the bottom of the league. I think they cannot afford to lose Yusuf Nurkic. He's been really good on the defensive side all season long. I think uh, that's one of the questions coming to the trade deadline. Will they will they find somebody to back him up and take a little bit of pressure off him? I think that's an important conversation. Uh, so Peter Sp- Peter Sampson in the Pulse coming up top of the hour. Uh, we're going to have great shows all week. Uh, John Strong will be on tomorrow's show. Voice of American Soccer. He's back from his tour of the World Cup, 
and he did a terrific job covering the World Cup as the play-by-play voice on Fox, did fantastic work. What was it like to be there, you know, far away with all the controversy over human rights and the death of a journalist, Grant Wall, who passed away during the uh, World Cup? And what was it like to be there to see a World Cup final? John Strong will be joining us. Plus, I'll ask him a little bit about kind of putting himself in the shoes of Joe Buck and Troy Aikman. I mean, I think it's the closest thing we have to, you know, a broadcaster that we can talk frankly with, that will be candid and authentic with us. He's coming in studio. He's gonna. John Strong's going to talk to us about what it is to be on air in those moments. And then we'll talk all about the Pac-12 conference with Strong. And, you know, he attended the University of Oregon. He's familiar with the Pac-12. He's a fan of the conference. You know, what does he see in the major sports world and in the broadcast world as it comes to media rights and the Pac-12 negotiating media rights? Um, you know, what are his thoughts on sort of the blend of exposure that the Pac-12 is chasing and revenue that the Pac-12 is chasing when it comes to this television deal that's coming down the pipeline? I expect, too, in the coming weeks that we're going to not only get resolution when it comes to media rights, but I think we're going to get some resolution when it comes to the Pac-12 conference's desire to expand. And I'm not positive. I'm not sold that the Pac-12 is going to add maybe more than one team to the mix. I think that there's a real chance that the Pac-12 conference adds San Diego State and then tells Boise State, SMU, Fresno State, uh, and some other candidates, hey, UNLV, hey, you know what, we really like you, but uh, you're not like an ideal fit. We need some more time to think about this. I think there's a real chance here that the Pac-12 conference adds um, San Diego State and nobody else in this round of expansion. I don't have that from a source at the Pac-12. I don't have that from a source at San Diego State. I'm just saying that's what I think is going to happen. That's where I stand right now. I could My opinion could change as I talk to more people around the conference and I talk to those directly involved with expansion. But I can tell you this. San Diego State wants to be in the Pac-12. The Pac-12 is looking for a Southern California presence. It just makes too much sense. And from a TV standpoint, the ability to grab 2 million-plus households in Southern California to say, hey, we still play games in Southern California, that could be really important to the Pac-12 conference as this conference sort of evolves to life without USC and UCLA. All right, grab a podcast wherever you get a podcast. Leave it here. If you're listening on 750 The Game, do nothing. Just sit tight. Peter Sampson and the Pulse are coming up. He's going to take you down memory lane, and he's going to talk a little bit about the Blazers and some other stuff. Your bald-faced truth not here for a long time, just a good time.